This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Happy November to you. November 1st. You did it. You, you made it through October. You've started another month. This is, remember, if you're thinking about life this way, it's the month of the big meal. You're going to get a really big Thanksgiving feast sometime this month. Hopefully, when you say the big meal, you don't mean like your last supper. No. Yeah, it won't be your last supper. Okay. I mean, hopefully. We don't want to... We don't want to scare anybody. Welcome to the show. Dr. Matt here. Uh, The gang's here. In fact, uh, Jeff Simpson's never been happier. Post-World Series Game 6, Dodgers win. It's now evened up. We've got a Game 7 tonight. And it's... This is it, folks. It's a big... It's a big day in L.A. L.A., they celebrated last night. What was it? Three to one victory over the Astros. Three to one. It was one zip off of a, an Astros home run for a good chunk of the game, probably until I think about the sixth yeah. inning. Yeah. And then once they Boom. hit the bottom of the sixth inning. Woo. Funny thing, Astros uh, had more hits, but they couldn't convert a hit to a run. That's they, right. They couldn't get the runners on the base and then get a big hit. And you know how I offered to uh, be hit by a pitch yeah, so I could get which, on base? Chase which, Utley took care of that for me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Isn't he – didn't they say Chase Utley's like the leader of the most – being hit the most by a pitcher? Nineteen times he was hit during the regular season. And he's the oldest player to score a run in a World Series game for 60 years. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. That's, it's that's, just one of the many see, statistics that they tried to fill time with. <laughs> yeah, the many meaningless statistics that they're trying to fill time with. Um, well, that's great. And all the kids had a great night. Uh, hope everything went well there. Um, in fact, we'll end up talking about it, I'm sure. We've got to get to the big headline today. New York attacked again. Uh, since 9-11, the deadliest terrorist attack with a, a man driving down a bike path, kills eight people, injures many, many others. And, uh, you know, basically claims the attack for ISIS. Right. Hmm. Well, apparently he exited the car yelling, Allah Akbar. Yeah. Started running. <sighs> uh, and by the way, used a, a, a local health, uh, what they call, home improvement store truck that he rented. Mm. And uh, so now that, you know, will forever go down in history as, uh, I guess, now the second largest terrorist attack. The sad thing, Argentine tourists were injured or, or, or died, I believe, among the dead, plus uh, someone from Germany, a lot of uh, different nations involved. And sad, sad day. Again, this is, again, the world we live in, which is why our guest today uh, may be somebody that can spark some hope. We're going to be talking with somebody that's written a book on Abraham Lincoln and how he really is the great unifier, even of today's politics. He's the great unifier of the Republicans and the Democrats. Everybody claims him. Everybody loves him as a president. What is it about President Lincoln that makes him such a unifier? We'll be talking about that because heaven knows in our world of politics and our world of just – Complete, complete divisiveness uh, and polarity in our paradigms and our way we see the world. We need somebody we can hold up as an icon. Everybody loves him as a president, but nobody can stand him as currency. That yeah. penny, no, that I penny know. is just pesky. But it's so important. Is it? Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Would you, oh, by the way, would you bend over and pick up a penny? Absolutely not. You still wouldn't, even for the even for the good luck thing. 
Even if it was like 100 years old, I probably still wouldn't do it. <laughs> I wouldn't take that chance, let's just say. I'm not going to bend over on the off chance that it might be a 100-old penny. Well, I know, but wouldn't you bend over just for a, a, just a little bit of luck? A wee bit of luck? No, I think a quarter is luck. Oh, wow. Boy, yeah. where have we gone? <laughs> I wouldn't bend over simply because of the fact that I may not bend back up. Right. Those cankles or grankles you've got. No, I'm sorry, not cankles. Yeah, they're not cankles. They're grankles. They're grandma's ankles. And I don't know why you need to bring those up now. It's kind of rude. Well, I mean, you would be using your ankles to not really. get back up, no, wouldn't I would, you? No, no, no. Just use it's all my in back. the legs and back. Okay. <laughs> Bringing up my grankles. You always, you always hit below the belt. Well, your grankles are below the belt. Very good point. Very, very good point. Uh, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. This is this is big news out of New York. Um, and again, uh, biggest terrorist attack since 9-11 for New York. Terry, hit us. What do we need to know about? The suspect in Tuesday's deadly truck attack in lower Manhattan is a 29-year-old from Uzbekistan. The man entered the U.S. in 2010, has lived in Ohio, Florida, and New Jersey. Law enforcement officials tell ABC News... He is married, has three kids, was a registered uh, statutory agent for two Ohio-based trucking companies, which is Mm. an odd fact. The man drove a rented truck down a bike path Tuesday afternoon, killing eight and injuring more than a dozen people. If the prices stay uh, consistent for that truck, he paid 20 bucks for it. He then uh, jumped out of his truck, ran up and down the highway waving a pellet gun and a paintball gun and shouting, God is great, in Arabic before he was shot in the abdomen by officers. He remains in critical condition. There's a note in the car claiming he did this for ISIS. The uh, people investigating feel like he's inspired, not necessarily an agent of type of situation. So, you know, motivated by things he's seen rather than actually being part of ISIS. And now we're going to have a ban on paint guns and pellet guns. That's, yeah. I mean, that's... Maybe there's a conversation. I don't know. That's just where everyone goes. And and rental trucks. From, you know, home improvement stores. So don't move. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The question of whether President Trump would try and unite the country at a time of attack like President George W. Bush did on 9 11 right. or, you know, revert to campaign Trump yeah. was answered this morning as he uh, lashed out at Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer for suspected, uh, he blamed them for the suspected New York City terrorist entry into the U.S. The terrorists came into our country through what is called the Diversity Visa Lottery Program, a Chuck Schumer beauty. No boy. I want merit-based, the president wrote on Twitter. Schumer later released a statement responding to the president. He was, I've always believed and continue to believe that immigration is good for America. The president was watching a segment on Fox and Friends where they were talking about this and then tweeted about it. And, you know, it's just so, how we do things now. Yeah. So, so did Schumer write that legislation? It was something he sponsored and put on a uh, bill in 2010. And and I guess the assumption is if we use a merit-based approach, no one that has ever been brought to the United States because of a merit-based approach would ever have done something like this? Um, apparently. Okay. Just checking. I mean, there have been mass murderers that were in the United States totally legally which sure. and actually have made a lot of money for the United States, like the, the shooter in Vegas. Mm-hmm. He seemed to have some merit until he started shooting everybody. Right. Okay, just checking. Um, Uber confirmed late Tuesday evening that the uh, terror suspect is a uh, driver for them. Oh. And uh, they're horrified by this senseless act of violence. That kind of a press release was put out, but yeah, he worked for Uber. That's interesting. Uber's really getting ahead of the story. Well, like they jumped on that fast. Yeah. It's 
not really what you want to no, as a marketing angle. You don't want that to come up later. Yeah. In other news, Tuesday's hearing by the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Crime and Terrorism is the first of three sessions with Google, Facebook, and Twitter representatives. The tech companies were pressed on their ability to prevent bad actors from taking advantage of their platforms through ads and regular posts. Uh, Seth uh, Figerman and Dylan Byers both report on this. Two more hearings on Wednesday. That was... Uh, Senator John Kennedy, Louisiana Republican, said in the hearing, I'm very proud that the three companies here uh, presenting here today are American companies, and I think you do an enormous good, but your power sometimes scares me, he says. Hmm. And uh, there was some discussion on the ad. A lot of the stuff, the uh, the posts they were presenting weren't ads. They were okay. just people who signed up for the service, and like you and me, we can all just post on Facebook. Oh, just they were able to use methods to get that out there and spread it far and wide, and it's you know just fake but, news. Type stuff. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah. So it wasn't like they bought an ad and presented yeah. the stuff, but they put out their own posts. Facebook doesn't want to stop people from posting to the service. No. So no. how do you stop someone who has nefarious ends in mind? It's just, it's just like terrorism. Yeah. I can't stand bad acting. Can ruin a bad good movie. Acting. You know, it's a really good point. The website Recode, one of the reporters was in the room, and he goes, Main takeaway from tech hearing so far, your congressional representatives, both Dems and GOP, have no idea how social media works. It's so true. It's kind of a... I know. So we're, trying to, we're trying to create policy with people that, huh. you know, that, you know, that aren't hip and cool. They just don't. Not, they don't yeah. know how to. They don't know how to move fr- the peeps. And from questioning, you weren't quite sure what the goal of the meeting was. Yeah. Are we here to shame them? Or are we here to find out information? Or we? It, everyone it, had a different end in mind. But isn't that the, really the method of most meetings? You're sitting there just trying to figure out why we're doing. I this. think the explanation of most of the meetings is the camera. That's the reason ah, for point. the meeting. And yeah. finally, a Michigan advi- a financial advisor who shares the same name as the former member of the pre- uh, President Donald Trump's campaign team caught up in the investigation of Russian meddling in the 2016 elections has been trying to sort out a case of mistaken identity. Hmm. George Papadopoulos identified himself on Twitter as a certified public accountant who offers financial advice. On Monday, it was revealed that the former foreign policy advisor to Trump, also named George Papadopoulos, pled guilty to lying to the FBI. Since then, the accountant has been busy on Twitter, adamantly <laughs> stating that he is not the same person who has had. He oh, has no association guy. with Trump. He also uh, bought, brought a sense of humor to the situation, tweeting, "Buy low, sell high," because he's a financial yeah, advisor. Right. And he also says, "Never lie to the FBI." That's a the, great for the other guy. That's right. Put also that on a meme. Also, George Papadopoulos, as of yesterday, well, probably before yesterday, if you put that in, you get the father from the TV show Webster, because that was his name. Oh. <laughs> By the way, what a great name, Papadopoulos. Papadopoulos. I mean, I mean, George Bush is a fun name to say, but George Papadopoulos. Yeah, it just kind of pops. Yeah, it makes you feel like you're smarter. Or it sounds like you should be selling pizza. Really, Papadopoulos. Hmm, that sounds like a good pizza pie. I don't know if you guys know this. Seven percent of me is Italian Greek. You have mentioned this. I think this is the third day in a row. I'm proud of it. You're because, proud of your Italian roots? Yeah, I, I, I spit in a cup, and my ancestry genetic DNA test says I'm pretty much a white Anglo uh, Scandinavian person, except mm. for 7% might be or is Italian Greek. We don't know if it's Greek you're, or Italian, but. You're just like the TV commercial where the guy's like, My whole family's Irish. Then he spits in a cup and he goes, and he's like wearing a kilt. He's like, We're Scottish now. And you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> that's me, exactly. Kilt, but you and know that's I mean. why I have that. That's why I have that really nice olive skin. Yeah. 
even <laughs> smells a little olivey. Really? Wow. Yeah, like because we went to Olive Garden again. Because that's what you do when you're we get seven percent Italian Greek. You get in touch with your which roots. Is what I am is I really am proud of it. That's pretty neat. Now I just got to go back and find that person. What are you proud of? I'm a, I'm proud of my heritage. You don't know anything about it. How can you be proud of something you don't know? No, yeah, yeah. No, I know. 7%. Well, I, that's it. That's like the only information you know, and well, you're already no, proud. Well, Greek, Greek, Italian, Mediterranean area. Right. But you're proud By of the way, this like line on a piece of no, paper. No, but now right? everything I've ever learned about that area is starting oh. to come back to me. Oh, okay. Um, right. It's one of the healthiest. It's one of the blue health zones. Mm. A lot of people live really long yeah, lives the Mediterranean there. diet is really clean. Yeah. Yeah. Using clean. your logic, I yeah. really hope that I have Mexican heritage because I would be eating Mexican food every day. But I'm pretty sure you don't. You're pretty sure? Yeah. Hmm. Habla Espanol? No. Ooh, really which good. way are you going to take that? Yeah, that was lucky. That was a <laughs> lucky one. It's uh. It's just, it's just, I don't want to brag. I just sense you guys are a little jealous that I know just, more about my heritage. Just questioning motivations, that's all. We're not, it's different. We're not jealous. I think we're offended by the offensive uh, garlic breath that you've got this morning. <laughs> Gar- yeah. By the way... And like, I, I'm overwhelmingly Irish, but you don't hear me talking about it. I know, but I don't, just, I don't know why. Just saying. Well, I, well, I'm kind of okay with it. I don't need to, like, you know, I don't know why you're overcompensate so, well, you've or got, anything. You've got haggis breath. Is that what that is? Yeah. Yeah, it smells. It's hard to play. Our little studio has a really fine odor to it. Hey, uh, so last night, mm. I, my son brought up a really interesting point. Oh, wow. This okay. was child child do, number six. Do tell. He said he has never carved a pumpkin. Mm. Neither had I until just the other day, which is great. Yeah. My first three kids, we carved a pumpkin every year. Mm. So you didn't, you've just given up on Halloween. Yeah. How did he feel about that? He apparently sad. Did he go carve a pumpkin? And then I his... walked up on our steps for the first time, and I saw that we had a carved pumpkin on our steps. And and I'm like, who what? carved this pumpkin? Were you full of him. the Halloween spirit? It wasn't him. It was my my oldest son had carved a pumpkin on a date. Well, you can't really text well, and tweet after you've you know reached into a pumpkin and pulled out all the pumpkin gets. Yeah. In fact, I saw a guy doing a drive by pumpkin carving. <gasps> How does that he work. was he was carving he was emptying the guts of a pumpkin out hmm. in a parking lot. Well, it's biodegradable. So while he was driving, as he's gutting a pumpkin. God, what's worse, texting while driving or carving a pumpkin while driving? He he had pulled over to gut it, but I'm sitting there thinking, oh sure, you leave the guts in my park. Eh, don't eh me. That there's, was my park. There's like birds. They'll, they'll biodegradable. The birds. Yeah, Hold so, it. it's like it's styrofoam. Pumpkin guts. So anything that's that is like the worst. <laughs> it's biodegradable. Yeah. What's I wrong? mean, a lot of things are biodegradable that you don't want just left in the park. Well, some of that's just marketing spin. This stuff's actually biodegradable. Within a few days, it'll just be a you know just so gross. we could just gut anything in the parking it, it lot would of our do, park. It would do wonders for your lawn. Depends on your neighborhood. That's the problem. <laughs> I already have a dog park in my neighborhood. By yeah. the way, Uh-oh. also would do wonders. Well, maybe not. Again, I don't want to get down on people because I could have a dog someday. Could, possibly. Sure. Um, drove by the dog park, packed. Mm. Our dog on park Halloween? is packed. Wow. Yeah, every day. Well, Was it doggy trick-or-treating or something? It was doggy dress-up day. Barker. Oh. Lots of dogs wearing costumes. Wow. Like a Barker treat? 
Yeah, it was a bark and treat. Okay, cool. It was a sniff bark and treat. Well, yeah, yeah. That's just given. They, uh, But they're dressing their dogs up. Yeah, it's kind of different. It's hard enough to get your kid to keep their costume on. But can you imagine what's going through the dog's head? He's like, what am I doing? Just give me a dog treat. Why couldn't I have a master yeah. <laughs> that cares less? What's going on? Why am I a clown today? Yeah. It was... I don't need the vest, but you know. It was such an interest. I'm like, you really got dog ears for your dog? And then how do you keep dog ears on your dog? Just have a tolerant dog. The dog is now a bunny. Well, it's, it's, it's the joy of Halloween. You get to be somebody else. Really? Just, Snoop Dogg. It's called no, it's George. It's George well, Clinton. I know he sampled this. George Clinton is uh, the long lost brother of Bill Clinton. Right? Wrong. Okay, just checking. By the way, it's it's an uh, extra mile day. This is the day that uh, you go the extra mile. Mm. The Extra Mile Foundation was founded in nineteen or in two thousand nine as a nonprofit organization to promote action and positive attitudes. It sounds like a bother. I know, but that's because you're a cynic. Is that what it is? If you weren't a cynic, you would think this is a great opportunity but, to in, to be encouraged to walk all uh, different, you know, paths of life. What is the end see. result of the extra effort? It, well, let's find out tonight in Game 7. Yeah. See, that just sounds like a bunch of opportunities lost. That's what Game 7 sounds like. <laughs> oh, see, that, that is the cynic in you. Yeah. This is where you get to, like, stretch your potential, try to do more, try to hmm. go the extra mile in Why didn't life, you just do become the, what you really want to become. Could you have done, like, all the days previous to the day you decided to do the extra? Yeah. Could you have just done the minimum and achieved the extra without actually doing the extra? Possibly. Did you just slack off before? Is yeah, that what but, this is? Well, maybe this is the catch-up day for the slacker. Okay. Can I can I give you an example of the take extra? the next step for the average oh. non-slacker. So after game six last night... The starting pitcher on the Houston Astros team tonight for that's going to start tonight. Yeah, went out to the field and started warming up with his catcher last night after the game. Wow. Well, he's that's gonna be going to be sore if he warms up all That's going the night. extra mile. Yeah, it is. That really is. Lottery's sending a message. He wants to get he wants to get the feel of the stadium and the energy of the peeps but in his heart. After game four, Kershaw, well, whatever game he was going to pitch in the next day, he went out. The night that they won, went on to the mound of the Houston Astros and uh, picked up the ball, kind of got a sense for things, you know, but yeah. they ended up losing get that game five. By the way, Justin Verlanders, is it Justin? That guy is can a pitch. flipping missile shooter. He's he can amazing. Pitch. Yeah. He, and then you just carry him a little too long. And then they get three, two runs. So maybe there was some wisdom behind uh, Dave Roberts' decision to pull the Dodgers starting pitcher so yeah. early. Even though he got booed. He did. Because that's the same strategy that has lost them a couple of games. Yeah. And because it, their bullpen has just pooped. Yeah. <laughs> Tonight's game number seven. You're not going to want to miss it. Dodgers uh, playing the Astros. And I think it's going to be a bomb fest. Really? Remember, every, it's pretty runs? much every other game, they have a big blowout, a slowdown. Last night was the slowdown game. Tonight's the blowout game. 
Ooh. Let's say 11 innings. 11 innings. Why not 12? Ooh, let's not push it because I've got to <laughs> get up early tomorrow morning. Uh, we got a lot to cover, folks. Up next, we're going to be talking about Abraham Lincoln. He's an icon both parties agree on. And uh, let's go figure out why because maybe there's some magic we could actually connect and, and maybe pull a lot of our politics out of the funk. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you see and be the good in the world. Abraham Lincoln is an icon of every American, it seems like, regardless of their associations with the Republican or the Democratic parties. And why is this the case? Well, here to speak with us today is Dr. Sean Perry Giles, the author of the book Memories of Lincoln and the Splintering of American Political Thought. Dr. Perry Giles and her co-author analyzed the writings of people who knew Lincoln personally and analyzed the rhetorical power of his public messages. Uh, Dr. Sean Perry Giles, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. This, um, to me, there's something I think we there, actually there's a lot that we can learn from Abraham Lincoln. Why is he such, uh, I guess, such an iconic, unifying figure for American politics? I think there are many reasons, but uh, you know, one of one of it is that you know he led the country through you know a very divisive civil war, and then was assassinated on the heels of it. But I think one of the things that we look at within the project is the ways in which those who knew him remembered him, and much of what we know about Lincoln or think about Lincoln is based on those memories. Given that he didn't leave a diary, we have his speeches. Um, we have some letters, but the this kind of industry of reminiscences was so large at that time that it that it those memories seep into scholarship, seep into kind of public memory of him. Hmm. Is it well, I mean that, that really actually is I think even more impressive in a way, right? Because now we hear about the presidents today that are going to sculpt their history. But it sounds like he just kind of dropped everything. I mean, he died, but it, the history was dropped, and then it was everybody that knew him and liked him uh, or didn't like him, I guess. But it became a very positive history, didn't it? It was positive, but it also was very divisive. Was it? So, you know, he, you know, at that time, presidents did not seek the office. It's hard for us to think about that now, but they, they did not campaign on – if they did, it was behind the scenes, and they had surrogates who did so. So this idea of putting out even campaign biographies had been around for a couple of decades, but they are always perceived to be written by somebody else. So there were a lot of biographies that came out, you know, when he was being considered for the presidency, but he was not really that connected with those. He, there's one that he's alleged to have helped with more than others. But then as soon as he died, that, that, that genre of reminiscences was pretty powerful at, at that time, and it was linked more to, like, wartime memories. But people – and that's what's so, I think, really interesting about the memories. It wasn't just, you know, generals and judges and, you know, p- politicians who remembered him, but also the people who knew him as a child, hmm. the people who knew him when he would hang out at the country store. And so it created this really much more – um, mosaic picture of him as this kind of great leader, but also this kind of mortal man. Wow. And yeah, because that's what you pick up is a little bit more of his humanity, even his struggles and family struggles with you know mental illness. And, his, and I mean, he, he just seems so human. <laughs> 
And that's, you know, I think that's what's so endearing about him that, that, you know, Republicans and Democrats alike can unite on is that we get a kind of a full picture of him. There's certainly the, the marbleized Lincoln that you see on the mall in the Lincoln Memorial. And even that was controversial, but that he was portrayed in that way. But we get a real picture of the struggles that he had, even as president, before president. And I think most people can identify with them. And he still persevered in spite of a lot of struggles and ushered the country through a very difficult time. You you bring up um, uh, your work and a lot of your work, it seems like it's it's how we talk about them. It's how it's our it's it's how we reminisce and the genre of reminiscence reminiscences. I don't know how you say that. Um, but you one of the things that you also bring up, like in, in our present day, is every president seems to kind of pick and choose their history of Lincoln that they want to focus on. Well, he became and it was, you know, the memories at the time were not all just um, glowing. There were people on that. That's why they were controversial, because at the time, people thought, well, if we're going to remember a martyr president, we only have to remember the positive things and to kind of exalt him. But people would come forward and remember things that we would see today as trashy. It was kind of the National Enquirer kind of memories at times, and others were, you know, published in literary magazines. So they would remember him as telling kind of raunchy stories, and being kind of impolite to women or, you know, he would sneak out of of windows during a a trial because he didn't want to be involved in in the case anymore. So we get the kind of less than positive side of him as well as the kind of glowing side of him. So it became also partisan at times so that Democrats and Republicans, even those who knew him, would try to use him during the Reconstruction era to unify the country or to prove that the the North was, uh, you know, on the right side and the South was not. And that kind of partisan memory pulled through after the reminiscence generation died out. And the biggest dispute that we came upon was between um, between Franklin Roosevelt and Herbert Hoover, one a Democrat, one a Republican. And the big split there that I think we still see today is partisan in the sense that is Lincoln remembered for his commonness or his self-made rise? Mm. Uh, Republicans tended to want to buy into the self-made rise and his that he rose above his commonness, that he became successful in spite of it. And Democrats wanted to talk about him more as that, that he was successful because he was common. And so FDR drew on, on his commonness and said Lincoln would want to help the, the common people and the government, therefore, should help them. Hoover would argue the opposite and said, no, we do not, the government should not help the people. They have to do it on their own and rise on their own. And that just kind of crystallized a lot of the divisions between the two parties. And, you know, I think we can still see some of that remnant today. So it's like there is still a unifying link and that pulls people together, but there's also very much a partisan one as well. Interesting. Is it, do you sense, will there be the ability, I mean, because it almost seems like um, the way this was created as a mosaic, uh, it came from so many other sources that maybe weren't as, or maybe they were as divided. Do you think it's it's uh, that future presidents and even the current living presidents, uh, past presidents, are, are they going to be able to put together 
as kind of a as as a a vision of who they are, a mosaic of who they are that might down the road be able to be picked up by in a bipartisan way. Well, and I think there's something at the time about reminiscences. I mean, they they were so pervasive. They were published in you know penny presses that were more affordable. They were published in books. They were published in literary magazines. People gave speeches about them. They they just and the, the press at that time, if there was something was published, say in Springfield, Illinois, it would be picked up in the New York newspaper. So they just widely circulated, and there was people would scrapbook the memories of Lincoln. If you go to the Lincoln Library in Springfield, they just have stacks of scrapbooks of just Lincoln memories that were put together by people because I think at that time they realized what they were doing was really, you know, kind of shaping. They really had this mission of shaping how uh, the future generations would understand Lincoln and understand, you know, the gravity of the, the war that they had just come through. So, you know, there's something at the moment about reminiscences and the ways in which publishing worked. You know, you wonder whether it would catch on the way that it does now. Um, the other dividing point is what should we remember about presidents? Hmm. And presidents want to shape their own legacy. Lincoln did, you know, had an ability to do that through his speeches, but now presidents write books and memoirs and and they try to shape their legacy. They want to be remembered for their public lives and oftentimes want to block access to the private. And that was controversial at that time. Many did not think that president we should know about the private life of the president and candidates now still want to block us from knowing especially the seedy parts of the less uh, positive parts of their past. But I do still think there's an interest in the private life of the president. You look at Kennedy or, or mm. figures like that. And, you know, so I think it's possible that there will be something similar. But there was, I think, a lot of forces that came together that made them even more powerful for Lincoln. Yeah, absolutely. Is that, uh, is, is I guess, is that why we, we maybe don't hear as many negative things about uh, Lincoln? I had never heard that he... That he, you know, snuck out of court cases or whatever. Um, but why is it that he is it just that we long to adore somebody? We just need somebody to to really hold up as an icon. Or why is it that we don't hear more of the negative stuff? I think we do. I mean, I think we do want to. I don't know. I mean, there's so much animosity towards our political leaders on all sides. You know, so I don't know. I don't know that. You know, we really believe that there are those figures that we can really. Um, that, I, mean, I think we recognize that any leader has flaws, but I think there is this ideal that you know we want to hold them up, and then we want some leaders to be you know above this kind of um, you know kind of seedy past, difficult life. But on the other hand, we're really drawn to it. So it's it's this. I think it's the same notion that if you're passing through the grocery store line, you still are drawn to the National Enquirer. You may not buy it, but you yeah. may read the headlines. And so just as we kind of don't want to know it, we also are drawn to it. And that the reminiscence has played on that piece of it. So, so much, you know, so much of those were about people who knew him before he became famous. And it wasn't just, you know, like in a eulogy, you're going to remember the grants, you're going to remember the larger um, things about people that made them extra special. But the reminiscence was like, it may just be 
simply somebody riding on horseback with him, and Lincoln sees, you know, an animal in distress and gets off his horse and helps the animal. You know, and it's that's, it may be a paragraph story. It's hmm. just like the mundane of things that just kind of capture the life, you know, of someone who's passed. And yeah. it just makes it a unique kind of genre. It's interesting, like with President Clinton, they they sculpted a really interesting image of him of kind of a, right. de- a man destined came from Hope Arkansas and single mom. I mean, it was you really can build the story by using the reminiscences of of the childhood friends and all of that. How have you seen uh, kind of the more of the the more current president, President Trump, President Obama? How did they uh, use Lincoln to further their position? Well. You know, I, we talk in the book in the last chapter about more contemporary presidents, and Obama tended to draw more on Lincoln as this kind of fragile, mortal man. So he, there's a point in the 2012 uh, acceptance speech when he was running for re-election where he talks about, you know, the struggles that the country had been through and how he came to understand um, Lincoln in the sense of why he made made the allegedly made the comment that he oftentimes went to his knees because he had no place else to go. Mm. And so it showed Link or Obama's drawing on that kind of fragility and that the difficulty and the the weightiness of the office as opposed to Romney during the same election went to this kind of exalted figure as Lincoln is this great man, this great thinker, this great leader. You know, it's just drawing on different different mm. images of it. Yeah. Of him, his memory. Does President uh, Trump, I mean, I know um, he one time was was asked if he could be a unifier like Abraham Lincoln because of the phrase uh, malice toward none, charity for all. How how is Trump uh, used or seen Abraham Lincoln in his language? Well, Trump, we write about this in, a, in an article, but the Trump was asked in a famous interview uh, by Woodward, whether or not he was, this, if he could be a unifying figure. And it was early in the campaign. And, you know, that he did acknowledge that that's probably one president he may not be able to exceed <laughs> in terms of effectiveness. Yeah. I think he suggested he would exceed all others. But at the same time, he pivoted pretty quickly in that same article interview to talk about how he's kind of um, tends to be less a unifier and draw upon the rage of the American people who are fed up with how things are working in Washington. So mm. he seemed much more interested in tapping into that part of his leadership. And in other cases, he's really kind of um, paid tribute to Jackson and Jackson's memory and more of his populist memory. And and he made the comment, some may remember, about had Jackson been president at that time, there would have never been a civil war, which is a, kind of an implicit critique of Lincoln. Right. By saying you know, Lincoln Bad leadership. is somehow responsible. Yeah. Um, do you, as somebody that's been, you know, totally, you know, immersed in this, what what are some stories that stand out for you about who the real Lincoln is? I think, you know, I think I'm also drawn to, you know, I think there is something compelling to really, I mean, I suppose we don't make a judgment on this in the book, but I think I'm, I'm kind of drawn to this idea, the argument that someone who becomes successful that owes 
it's not so much that the, he's escaping his past as part of his past. It is, you know, and the argument was made that he, he was great because of his commonness, because he was always rooted within the common people, and he knew never forgot them. You know, it's like other people by the people. He was forever, that shaped his life forever. So I would probably be one, if I just talk about it, my own views about it would be his commonness helped define him, and he's great. he became great because of it. Others would argue it's, you know, a constraint, and you need to rise above it. So yeah. I was oftentimes drawn to these stories where he would be in a position to exact revenge after as the war came to an end you know he could have back you know he could have made sure every all the generals from the, the south were arrested and imprisoned and paraded them at, about to humiliate them but he didn't and there were stories of how he let lee just let him right away and stories of how when youth you know, some of the soldiers from the South were caught and court-martialed. He was known to pardon them. He was very strict, apparently, when it came to the slave, the people who were slave owners and the people who were slave traders, and that he showed no mercy. But when it came to the, the, the people who were fighting that just came off the farms, he tended to show greater mercy towards them. And I think those stories about him wrestling with these kind of moral dilemmas at a, a very deeply person, personal level has struggled through them, I think, are the ones that kind of stay with me most. Yeah, beautiful and beautiful stuff. Well, Sean, we appreciate you and your great work. Uh, Sean Perry Giles um, is, a, again, uh, she's the director of the University of Maryland Center for Political Communication and Civic Leadership, and also um, the the great, really, when you think about it, author of uh, of of a book about Lincoln, Memories of Lincoln and the Splintering of the American Political Thought. It really is powerful to be able to go back and look at these iconic leaders. There is something that we all can appreciate in, in, each, uh, in each of our leaders if, if we're willing to look for it. Up next, we're going to do a little Coach's Corner and carry on that discussion about uh, what are you willing to see in another and are we making too much stuff up? This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. you boy you too stupid to do what your coach tells you because life doesn't come with a handbook you need a coach here's dr matt and his coaching corner Play ball. welcome back friends you know isn't it interesting that uh, you can see anything you want to see in history and you can hear any anything you want to hear it really is uh it's it's the attribution error we can basically make anything we can attribute any meaning to anything. That is the neat thing about being a human being. It's also, if you're not careful, it's it really is the beginning of uh, disillusionment and a bunch of manipulation. But we do it. And I guess part of it is it's one thing when it becomes part of the political world. It's another thing when we are just doing it to each other. Remember, we, we negatively interpret each other because it serves us. Somehow we feel, I guess, safer if I can think of you as a dangerous person, then um, necessarily thinking you of you as a safe person. So the minute you violated any trust with me, my my tendency will be to interpret what you do, who you are negatively. I won't look for all the data you bring to the equation. I'll only look for the negative data. Every one of us does this. 
And uh, so the the example I always give is if you go to the um, if you are bit by a snake in the garden, then the next time you go back to the garden, you are not looking for tomatoes. You are not looking for beautiful roses. You are looking for snakes. If you see the garden hose, guess what it is to you? It's a snake. If you see the rake in the middle of the garden, what is it? It's a snake. Anything that can hurt you or anything that you see would be tainted by the history of low trust. And so when we have a Lincoln, uh, and what an interesting way to get the history of Lincoln is from the people that knew him as a child, the people that saw a little you know story here, a little story there. So a lot of his stories add up to be very, very positive. And, you know, when the majority of the stories are positive and the and there's fewer negative uh, interpretations of the person, the, in the end, the outcome will probably be fairly positive. And we do it. We do it with Lincoln. And it's interesting, too, how our leaders pick and choose. You know, they, they pick and choose the parts of history that, that they want to replicate. But think about it in your case. How do you want to be remembered? And, and what... What are the remnants, using our last guest's words, Sean's words, that, that will make up your life? What are the stories that will be your part of your mosaic? And do those matter to you? Do you know overall what you want the mosaic of your life to be? Can you imagine? He had no idea he was going to be shot that night. Lincoln didn't. And yet he had enough mosaic uh, and enough stories of the positive sort that created a pretty powerful, iconic person. Not perfect, apparently. Apparently, he tried to sneak out of his court hearings (laughs) as an attorney. It's kind of funny. Who knew about that? Anyway, uh, interesting stuff. And again, if we put a a really big spotlight on every one of us, most of us would probably not make it through in a very perfect, clean way. So we also have to be careful of that. But think about it. You get to make up your life. You also get to interpret how others are seen. And um, be careful that you're not overly uh, being creative in how you make up somebody. Uh, There are people, I think, in our world, even in our political world, that uh, I think we just keep only looking at the one thing we like and maybe overlooking other parts. But let's try to also see people as wholes. They've got a whole life, right? They don't they, – they have the good, the bad, and the ugly. And let's not pretend that everything is always just perfect and rosy. And let's not make sure – let's not make everything skewed negative. That's why I think there's such an argument going on about fake news because, you know, President Trump would think everybody's only pointing out the negative And there are some positive things that are happening and they're being done in a way that maybe isn't – they're not always as positive as they could be. So – there is a way that we all can be right here, right? There's not only one right and one wrong. Anyway, a little Coach's Corner for you, hopefully uh, helping us all be a little bit better in how we interpret and see the world. We will continue the journey when we come back. We're going to be talking about lessons from Halloween. Uh, we're going we're gonna to gather the good buddies here and figure out what they learned from their kids, how much candy did they actually steal from their children, and uh, did anybody gain weight. This is the Matt Townsend Show, a recap of Halloween. As we like to do on the show, we, we always like to do a post-mortem. 
uh, a, a little lesson learned after Halloween so we can document these things, make sure next year it goes even better. I uh, My biggest learning is that I've got to go spend more time at the dog park hmm. to celebrate the great work and workmanship of so many dog owners who somehow got their dog to wear a costume. Mm. That's That's my big takeaway. I learned three things. What did you learn? First of all... Uh, don't buy a giant bag of the chocolate candies because when inevitably not enough trick-or-treaters show up, you're not tempted by all this chocolate. We bought ah. instead the Costco-sized bag of, like, the fruity candies, yeah. like Skittles and gummy bears and Sour Patch Kids. I'm not as tempted by those. I'm so not, that's, that's a great That's learning. lesson number one. Yeah. Lesson number two, don't trust your three-year-old to select her own full-size candy bar from the bucket because she yeah. will choose the wrong one, which in this case was Three Musketeers. I mean, the assumption there is that there is a right one or a wrong one, but... What there would have is been the correct choice? Anything but the three musketeers. Oh, wow. Nobody <laughs> chooses the three musketeers. And then lesson number three: uh, don't uh, leave your garage door open with the lights on and the uh, door unlocked. Why? Because I woke up to that this morning and it freaked me out. Did you? You left your garage door open. The garage door itself, yeah. and then the door wow. going into the, into the house was unlocked, and the lights in the garage were on. So your advice is batten down the hatches. Yes. Gotcha. That's a great lesson. Yeah. I have neighbors that call me and say, you left your garage door open. Mm. You need to get some neighbors like that. Just saying. Okay, Terry, what did you learn? My lesson <laughs> is if you want to get through a 400-piece bag of candy, yeah, handfuls, starting at like 6.30. By 8.30, you're in bed. Bed, but, you know, everything's, you know, you, you shut off the lights. Eight, you just gave a big yeah, handful. It was, it was like five, six pieces at a time. Wow. We went trick-or-treating at the it's wrong good. house, I guess. I was just like, yeah. you know, I want to be part, but not like for the whole evening. I have things to do. What What did you learn about, did you wear a costume finally? No. You wore no costume. Either did I, but I felt really bad the about door. it. Uh, Why did you feel bad? Because... Everybody, everywhere we went, they were wearing costumes. I like, why couldn't I just wear something? You're part of the social contract that would hand out candy. No, I was out. Just, on, I went out with my grandchild. Well, you're just the the adult walking around. You're not. You don't have to dress yeah. up. You can if you want to. And By have the fun, way, but, I big lesson. Hmm. Big lesson. Be the people. Be the people that have hmm? that have friars and make scones. Be those people. It's so weird. People set up camp in their driveways. Like, those, what are you doing? Those people made my night. Yeah, we had a fire. We had a fire stuff. in our front yard. No, but like, did you make scones? No. Yeah, these guys were frying yeah. scones, and we knew them, and that was fun. And they were giving them out. Yeah. Wow. It was so, so nice. So it's more than just you know a quick flyby. You yeah. stop and you visit. You, you talk. hang out for a few minutes. Yeah. And then they actually had candy there, but nobody would take their candy because they wanted a scone. Absolutely. Yeah. So they were making scone. It was the best night. That. And if you're social, and again, I'm not social. Yeah. But uh, that's a really good idea if you're social. Let's get social. Mm. Social. Mm. Yeah, it doesn't sound the same. No. Lessons from Halloween, folks. Uh, You know, hopefully you go take your own post-mortem and go. uh, That sounds So if you want to finish early, (laughs) handfuls of candy. Just get rid of of it and leave. Or keep the candy, and then you can eat it over time. Or just buy candy that you'll never eat, like Jeff taught us. All these great lessons coming from the Matt Townsend Show. Mark them down. Put them on your calendar next year. That way you won't make the same mistakes we did. Lots of fun. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. 
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends, and happy Extra Mile Day. This is the day you all go the extra mile. You work a little harder, you be a little nicer, you do everything you know you're supposed to do. But unlike the proclaimers, let's let's not go 500 miles. That's going yeah. too many extra miles. Yeah, I think it's just you just need to go one extra mile. Not even a thousand, because they mention a thousand. You don't in need that to go a thousand too. miles. You don't need to go five thousand miles. But make it like a seven minute mile. It's a good, nice pace. But it, it's not. This isn't wow. go the extra seven minute mile day. Some people how long can't. Would it, how long would it take you? Some people can't do a seven minute mile. Are you a 10-minute mile guy? I used, I used to. I think there was a day back when I was a runner, I could do a seven-minute mile for I think, one mile. Yeah, I think seven minutes was my best time. But, like, that was one mile. Yeah. Then I st- Then after that, I did a 21-minute mile. So I'd do my first mile would be a seven-mile, and my second mile was a 21-minute mile. Did you mile. crawl that for that second time around? Wow. Yeah, I was dragging my That's leg. That's a pretty slow mile. <laughs> Can a guy not drag a leg See, without everybody I, making I'm fun I'm a of solid nine-minute mile. Yeah, but that's yeah. You could you could pump out a seven minute. That's mile. a good, the, nice pace. Now I could. You just couldn't but do what the second. Would, mile. What would be the reason? I need motivation beyond like. You well, know, looking. Health. How about just looking manly? No, that's not going to be the difference. <laughs> do you remember doing the presidential fitness challenge in high, in school? No, no, we didn't do that. That was your thing. Yeah, that was Reagan's thing. Yeah. By you then, guys, by then they had better thoughts, better ideas. Like we don't need people climbing ropes and doing pull-ups and climbs. Yeah, no wonder everyone. Let's just, no wonder we had this obesity epidemic. Let's shame our children. Was that your generation? <laughs> was the obesity? No, we epidemic. played like pickleball and lots and lots of basketball. Yeah, we in did gym. Too. Yeah, we, we played were always square. running. We were always running. We ran every Thursday. You'd run the mile, unless That's it was cruel. below. What was it like? Fifty degrees, sixty yeah, degrees. But why would you run yeah. the mile? Because, you know, they hated us. Presidential Yeah, fitness. I was just going to say, is this payback from the coaches or something? Mm-hmm. You're going to run that were mile? You, were you a good rope climber? I was never a good rope climber. I don't really remember climbing ropes, but we always ran. Always. Yeah. I'm still not a good rope climber. I tried. No, yeah. Doesn't no. work. Then there's the chafing. Well, there's that. We won't even go there. We got a lot to cover today. We will be getting into uh, parental debt and uh, your child. How much about your financial situation should your kids know? Should they know how much you make? Should they know how much stuff costs? At what age do you start dripping that information out to them? You want to inform them. They probably need to learn about debt and credit. You don't want American Express or Visa to be teaching them this in college. I think Terry's situation was kind of right where it should be. Yeah. Twelve years old, I think it gives helps give those kids some perspective. They unleash the financial kraken. Dad told you how much he makes. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, Whoa, okay. Oh wow! I remember my father in law said, "You need to make this much money to to live well." What was that number? That number back in my day was a hundred thousand dollars. Whoa, back then. Mm-hmm. Well, hold on, it wasn't Pioneer Day. You make it sound like that was so no, long ago. I didn't ago. say that. Mm. No, you gave it a whistle. I love to whistle. <laughs> Why do they have to be related? I don't know. But um, <laughs> but now in my head, I'm like, well, man, yeah, that's not nearly enough. Hmm. But, you know, now I've got this I, number. Maybe it's not good to give them a number because then the number is stuck in your head. Then you just, you know, once you hit certain number, are you just happy? 
The reality is happiness only equates to about 70 grand. Yeah, that's what the study all you need show. to make. You only need to make 70 grand to be happy. You know, that's why if you're making 60, you're like, hmm. I'll never be happy. <laughs> <laughs> this will never happen. I'm not sure if that's how it works. Yeah, maybe it's not a number either. We'll get to all of that straight ahead. But uh, we've also got to talk about uh, the the tragic, tragic headline in New York. Another terrorist attack. Let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? Following the truck attack in Manhattan that left at least eight people dead and more than a dozen injured, President Trump tweeted Tuesday evening about the Islamic State saying militants must not be let into the United States. We must not allow ISIS to return or enter our country after defeating them in the Middle East and elsewhere. That's under... it. We took down their capital, but it didn't eliminate them. They're still around. Yeah, no. And isn't it interesting because President Trump was about to like declare victory on ISIS. Yeah. I mean, mm. just a month ago, he's he had like an aircraft much like, carrier. There yeah. was a ban banner that said, like, mission accomplished. Was, no, that, wait, was Bush. That, that was different. That was Bush. Trump said enough. It, it was his second tweet on the incident. About an hour earlier, he wrote the in NYC looks like another attack by a very sick and deranged person. Law enforcement is following this closely, not in the USA. That was all in caps. I felt like not yelling. It's kind of early for yeah. being loud. Several minutes after the tweet about ISIS, Trump followed up with my thoughts, condolences and prayers to the victims and families of the New York City terrorist attack. God and your country are with you. The uh, man who committed the terrorist attack from Uzbekistan, ah. probably saying that wrong, but you know, it's a stand. Yeah. He uh, has been in the country since 2000. It's one of the stands. Of the stand. You're going to pay for that. Yeah, I just I can tell already. He's been, he's been, <laughs> been in the country since 2010. Yeah. He was shot by a police officer. He got out of his truck. Shot, but not not killed. He's alive. Right. He's but, in a yeah. hospital in critical condition, but he's he's they feel he's going to survive. Yeah. There was an, a letter in the truck that he was saying, like, he did this for ISIS. The investigators don't think he's a part of ISIS, just a sympathizer yeah. type of thing. Not like part of the club. Didn't have He had the... a pellet gun and a paintball gun when he got out, so that doesn't really show, like, I mean, he had, like, you know, they're not, I mean, they're guns, but they're not, like, bullets. These shooting, well, again, can you imagine balls. the terror of just the truck anyway? But then a guy gets out shooting a gun. Right. That right, you don't know what's going know on what's, at the moment. But, but. again, it, it, now we're going to have to fight paintballs paint and pelicans. Well, so. it's, hopefully it's because he was not able to get access to more yeah, deadly maybe. weapons. So I guess in a way that's good that he wasn't able to get those. Yeah, that's really but good. Still unfortunate. So the investigation's ongoing. We can handle... An attack with a pellet gun. Right. I used to have, that's the only gun I ever owned was a pellet gun. But then I didn't own any pellets. Ah. So My gonna, parents were very smart that way. <laughs> is this going to change the requirements for getting a rental car? Maybe. But hmm. th- this was a rental car from a, uh, a truck from a home improvement store. You'll see mm. them in the parking lot. They're like 20 bucks. Yeah. So, 20 bucks an hour. Yeah. But, you know, it's been hours now. They're going to keep that truck forever. His, yeah. He's going to get a bill. Be crazy. Oh, In other gosh. news, U.S. Senators on Tuesday pressed Facebook Inc. chief lawyer on why the company did not, did not catch 2016 election ads bought using Russian rubles, why its investigation of them took so long, and how much it knows about its 5 million advertisers. Democrats and Republicans of the Senate Crime uh, Subcommittee hearing fired questions for much of the two hours of Facebook General Counsel Colin Stretch who said that in retrospect, the company should have done more. In hindsight, uh, we should have had a broader lens. There are signals we missed, Stretch said under questioning from Democratic Senator Al Franken about how the company missed political ads, 
bought with Russian money. Stretch called the Russian-based ads reprehensible for their political divisiveness. The hearing marked the first time tech executives have appeared publicly before U.S. lawmakers on the Russian matter. And uh, which, yeah. So it's nice to know that uh, Stuart Smalley... (laughs) Is all over this. Oh, it's funny. He asked him, <laughs> w- would, would you, uh, if someone came with money from North Korea, would you accept that? Or can you tell me now that you wouldn't accept that? And the lawyer's like, no, not really. Money's money. Money is money all over. The- I-, I think the problem is, and some of the question you could see this, Facebook is an international company. Yeah. Yeah, they're based in California. Yeah, they're, they're U.S. home and, you know, grown and all that. But it's an international company. They take money from all over the planet. Yeah, right. And we would accept we would accept Clinton's money, whether she's laundering it through uh, China right. or through Russia, and we'd accept Trump's money, whether it's coming from Russia right. or through Bannon, whoever. Yeah, we'll accept the money. And then and then they're like, you have five million advertisers. Do you know every single one of them? Do you have data on every single one? Of them? No, it's an automated process. If you well, fulfill yeah. the requirements, they take the money. Uh, by the way, uh, Senator, you have 500,000 uh, people that you serve in your district. Right. Do you know all of their names? And do you accept all of their donations? And have you checked every donation? He doesn't know no. all their names, but he does know that they're good enough, smart enough. And doggone it, people like them. (laughs) The SNL senator. In other news, a large group of U.S. states accused key players in the generic drug industry of a broad price-fixing conspiracy, moving on Tuesday to widen an earlier lawsuit to add many more drug makers and medicines in an action that sent some companies' shares tumbling. Mm. The lawsuit brought uh, by the attorney generals of... 45 states in the District of Columbia accused 18 companies and subsidiaries and named 15 medicines that were involved. A couple of the executives are actually accused of getting on phone calls with each other and deciding which drugs they're going to kind of maybe hold back on, which ones are they going to kind of increase, and there's some collusion on price. They're saying uh, the state said the drug makers and executives divided customers for their drugs among themselves, agreeing that each company would have a certain percentage of the market. The companies sometimes agreed on price increases in advance. The states also targeted these two individual executives who are accused of speaking directly to one another uh, on their company's shares of market for a delayed release of a version of common antibiotic. Wow. They're That's like, a okay, big you deal. Get, you get this section of the economy. We'll get this section of the economy. Don't don't come on our, yeah, don't no, play yeah. in our, our area, right? We're going to have these different right. zones, and so we can all have... This is know, in Russia, money. right? This was no, in this, Russia? this was here. These were oligarchs, right? And it's what they're accused of. Oh, This will have God. to be all proven out. The Attorney General of Connecticut but by says... by 45 states. Yeah. What, what, what were the other five states doing? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. No, they, we're totally for these guys. The Attorney, <laughs> the Attorney General of Connecticut says it's our belief that price fixing is systematic, it's pervasive, and that it's a culture of collusion that exists Holy in the industry. Cow. Yeah, that needs to be. We, no wonder we always have high prices. High prices. And this is on generics. Come on. This isn't even like the name brand stuff. This is the stuff that's supposed to be cheaper. We did a story yesterday that uh, in the opioid epidemic, mm-hmm. seniors are getting opioids so that they can sell the opioids on the market to pay for their other meds. Right. Mm. Like when you need your diabetes <laughs> meds, you've got to go become a drug dealer. This is crazy. <laughs> a facilitator. A drug facilitator. Yeah, so- because you can get your opioids for five bucks and then sell them for five bucks a hit. Right. 
Unbelievable. Okay. And finally, Tom Brady thinks he's discovered the science of invincibility. He's the Patriots quarterback. He's in his 40s now. Oh, is he? I didn't. And they, oh, just, tra- I, oh, they, wow. just, they just traded his backup yesterday. He's he, got an invincibility cloak. Yeah, and and apparently, yeah, yeah. Apparently, he has a book out, which is why this is uh, ESPN. The magazine's covering this. It's called the TB12 Method. Claims that it's possible not just to prevent injuries, but even to decelerate the aging process as most people experience it today. Come on. This is different from that collar that we talked about a while back. The collar? The collar. Yeah, the... the, the like the the trauma collar or whatever. The, yeah, oh. the concussion collar. Yeah, the oh, yeah, yeah. collar. Yeah. But this is different simply because he's saying he can actually reverse... Aging. Yeah, you can reverse aging. He wants to play football until he's 45, outsmarting the science of aging and concussions with uh, pliability, he says. Famous for being unforgiving for himself when he makes mistakes. Brady turns out to be unforgiving of players who make the mistakes of getting injured. Mm. Uh, This is all ESPN the magazine. Going on to quote the New England uh, Patriots quarterback saying, If our bodies can handle the force, it doesn't matter what sport we play or how old we are. That's why age isn't my problem. Okay. okay. Go ahead. I thought you'd have something to say Uh, on this. (laughs) First of all, his wife is who? Uh, Giselle Bunchkin. 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 She's a Brazilian model, yes. Yeah, okay. So let's just say he's living for something. Mm, okay. And he's got, like, three, he's got beautiful boys. kids. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but do you remember what was it? Three years ago, mm. he took a hit that yeah. broke his leg. And in that moment. I think it tore his Achilles. But yeah, go ahead. Did it tear his Achilles? I think so, yeah. That moment, he didn't look like he was that. No, mm. but, but maybe he changed his his approach to training. He's, but he's one. What do they call it? A bum rush. He's one. Yeah. He's one bum rush right. away from being a really old man. Yeah, I mean, all they need Just, is a, an Aaron Rodgers karate chop land on your body, break your collarbone. Yeah. Then he looks really now, old. Now, and then Giselle, yeah, is going to flee like a gazelle. <laughs> now it helps <laughs> that Just saying. He's one of the most talented quarterbacks in the league. Yeah. He also has an offensive line that is, they is protect good. Him. They keep people out, give him yeah. enough time to yeah. get rid of the ball. And he doesn't have to move much. Right. That's the perfect job. Yeah. Terry Bradshaw could have played till he was 60 under those conditions. Now, Giselle did come out either earlier this season or late last season saying that uh, Tom Brady has suffered multiple concussions. Hmm. Yeah. And they've just kind of let it go. Did you she know. mention that they actually, you know, some morning she'll find him stuck in a corner? No. <laughs> you know what this sounds like to me? When you started reading this, I thought, did he lift this from one of those fake news stories that says Tom Brady confirms mm. the rumors and you click on it and it's an ad for anti-aging yeah. cream? Right. He's starting. You know he's starting a multi-level <laughs> marketing thing. Yeah, that's what it looks like. This is what he, he'll, he'll launch it's this like, big company. It's all pickle juice. Yeah. Yeah. It's that magical juice, and when you drink it, it will literally regenerate an arm. <laughs> you mentioned Tom Brady getting hit, and I, I you know I'm going to talk about the World Series, right? He's oh, yeah. Twist it so, into baseball. Here we go. Did you see <laughs> the home run, the solo home run that Jock Peterson on the Dodgers yes. hit that the man in the, the, man in the, in the stands totally tried missed. to catch yeah. it, missed it, and it clocked this lady in the stomach? <laughs> It's you just like I'm not laughing at the lady getting clacked. I'm laughing at what the commentator said. It's very (laughs) rare that you'll have the commentators talk about them missing a ball. 
But they were like, oh, man, that, oh, that lady's mad that he That's going to that. ruin her night. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> honestly, there's some balls you got to catch. And that was that one. That was one. You get one chance, buddy. You get one <laughs> you chance. You could almost hear her just going, oh. <laughs> now, you mentioned Tom Brady's injury. Yeah. That was in 2008. Oh, was it that? Nine years ago? Yeah. It was the first game of the season, and he tore his anterior cruciate ligament. So it was ACL. Is that when he was out? No. I and then he missed was... the remainder of the season. And uh, backup Matt Castle replaced Brady, and they went on. I believe they made the playoffs, but didn't. Actually, win, of course, the Super Bowl. Matt That's, Castle, the next year, yeah, traded to the Kansas City Chiefs. That, see, he's they don't need him. And he didn't do so well. Yeah. They don't need him. Well, again, wow. I think anybody playing with and the now, Patriots would do well. Yesterday, they took the backup quarterback, who's backing up a 40-year-old quarterback, who actually people feel is a pretty good quarterback, and they traded him to San Francisco because they got a second-round draft pick, and the Patriots thought that was a better deal. Oh, yeah. So now they don't necessarily have as good a backup, and they're probably going to pick up the guy the 49ers cut to take this new guy on. There's so always switching Kaepernick. Well, no, Kaepernick. No, 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 no. No, he could always play. I mean, he's available. Sure, he's available. Unless unless Canada picks and him up. And he's a better quarterback than the guy the Patriots are going to pick up. But, eh. Yeah, nobody it's wants It's Kaepernick, him. and he's not. the Patriots don't have that kind of offense that yeah. Kaepernick mm. wants to run. What do you do? What do that, you do? He's been blackballed. So. <sighs> <laughs> the league's not going to. Once you're on the blacklist, it's never going to work. Uh, let's get to some empty news uh, with our empty news. Um, what do we call our empty news uh, caster, newscaster? That sounds so weird. Our empty news anchor, Jeffrey Liam Simpson. The empty news team. First on the scene, fifth on facts. We just mentioned World Series. Yeah. It's going to be game seven tonight. Tonight's the big game. Well, Shik Shumway is super excited because he is on the scene. He is ready to give Good. us his report. Uh, you know, get people are are excited for Game Seven. He's on the scene right now. Um, Shik, what do you have for us? Thanks, Jeff. Well, many have said all along that this series was destined to go seven games. Both teams have played their hearts out, and one of them will be going home tonight as World Series champions. Now, normally, even though it's early in the morning, there's some sort of activity at the ballpark, spraying down the field, players and staff arriving, fans eagerly awaiting the game. But right now, there's nothing. Not a zip. I'm not really sure when things are going to start picking up around here. One thing is for sure, though. This reporter will be sporting his red, white, and blues, hoping the Washington Senators can pull off a W in what's sure to be an epic Game 7. Reporting live from Minute Maid Park in Houston, I'm Shik Shumway. Hmm. Somebody sent Shik to Houston. I think we tried to tell him multiple times to go to L.A. Yeah. It is in Houston. And have you ever heard of the Washington Senators? A uh, long time ago I had, yeah. Hadn't huh. they, weren't they? Huh. I don't think they... He doesn't know that they're... they're. Yeah. But I tell you what he did get right. What? He did get the Washington Senators' colors just right. He, yeah. Um, That's something. He's not even in the right, he's not even in the right state for the game. Man. I don't know if this is a problem of producing. Is this a producer problem? Is this Terry's issue? Is this? Uh, don't look at me. I'm not the producer. Okay. Okay. Well, 
It might just be more of a chic thing. I'm sure we even bought him a ticket to L.A. I'm pretty sure I paid for a ticket. He got there somehow. Somehow he Maybe he hitched a ride. Anyway, first in facts? No. First on the scene, fifth in the facts. That's what we like to do. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Nobody likes the feeling of a large debt hanging over their head. And personal finance advisors have made a profession of helping people decide how to spend their money for better or for worse. So how has debt impacted our families? Specifically, how does it impact our kids? A few months ago, I spoke with Dr. Lawrence Berger, director of the Institute for the Research on Poverty and chair in the School of Social Work at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I began the interview by pointing out that the decisions when it comes to when and how we spend our money impacts our children long term. Yeah, so I think we've known for a long time that income and money matter for family functioning, for children's development. Um, and I think the debt aspect is just sort of a newer take on um, thinking about packages of economic resources. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting what you found, uh, basically. Actually, just talk about the research that you've done. I mean, you're, you're an expert and, and, a, and a student, really, of poverty, trying to understand the impact and uh, – uh, the the hit that poverty can take on our families. What? How did your study work? And t- and talk about some of the findings. Sure. Um, so you know, to give you a little bit of background, why we got interested in this is that you know there's a, a long-standing you know and pretty convincing uh, literature that you know it, children's well-being is strongly associated with families' socioeconomic resources, so it's uh, income, wealth, and assets. Um, and potentially um, in a causal way. So if families, you know, experience a big drop in income, um, for instance, it has some, you know, pretty clear um, negative consequences for kids. Um, At the same time, if you look at the decades leading up to the Great Recession, um, there were huge increases in debt um, in the U.S. And, you know, this was really going on for, you know, 40, 50 years. Um, but the recession kind of called um, attention to the risks associated with, with debt and with household debt burden. Hmm. Um, and so in at least the child development or child well-being literature, um, debt, you know, was really not considered. So there were really no studies on how does debt um, play out in terms of, of, of children's development. Um, and so why might we think it's important, right? So in some sense... Debt could be, you know, it, it, it is um, the, the access to credit is important for families, right? So if you um, need to invest in human capital, right, you can borrow to go to college. You can borrow to get to increase your education. Mm-hmm. Um, if you need to make, you know, large ticket items purchases, um, you can borrow for those purposes. Um, and then third, even, you know, um, borrowing for immediate consumption is important, right, to purchase goods and services in the event of an income shock or a health shock. Right. And so in many ways, you could see that, you know, it helps, you know, being able to take on debt can help preserve families' um, financial situations and can, could thereby, you know, be good for kids because you could, you could borrow to invest in things um, for your children. Um, the flip is that 
debt eventually needs to be paid back. Um, and even in cases where it's not paid back, there's often, you know, some pressure to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even if you're eventually going to discharge it through bankruptcy or a home foreclosure, you know, there's a, a big period of time where people are trying to collect that money. Yeah. Um, does it matter the debt? Does it matter what type of debt? Yeah. So, uh, um, so that was one of the things that we looked at, right? So different types of debt may have different um, implications for families, right? So um, if you're borrowing for education, right, you think of that as a human capital investment. That's something that you're often doing with forethought. So you're thinking about, I want to borrow this money for a specific purpose that's often going to lead to better lifetime wages and income and, you know, all those things that are linked to health, um, and well-being of, of adults and children. The same with, you know, buying a home. So that's often done, you know, with foresight. That's often done, um, you know, a, as a form of investment. Homes tend to um, increase in value over time. They also are a great asset that once you've paid down, you, if you need to borrow later, you can borrow again on relative, at relatively low interest rates. Um, compared to um, uh, unsecured debt, so credit card debt or other types of loans. Um, And in many ways, you know, a home uh, can give you, you know, a a stable place to live and often um, access to better neighborhoods and better schools and things like that. Um, The flip side is, uh, you know, borrowing for credit cards or borrowing through payday loans, so what we call unsecured debt, where where there's no... Um, collateral uh, is often done for different reasons. So it's often done for immediate consumption. Um, mm. So and it's less of an investment in the future. And essentially, you know, you borrow the money, and then what you borrowed for often is gone, um, and then potentially you have to pay it back. And so one of the things we wanted to look at was, you know, do these different types of debt. Um, do they have different associations with children's um, uh, socio-emotional well-being? Hmm. And, and by socio-emotional well-being, um, a very common way to measure it is through um, behavior problems. Okay. So, so, so if parents are in debt, uh, certain types of debt, home debt, school loan debt, mm-hmm. uh, you were testing to see if, if those – if their children – I mean so they're still making payments on their credit cards and on their debt. If those children had you know, different behavioral issues than maybe the parents who had payday loans or were in credit card debt. Correct. Huh. What, what, were, what did you find out? Yeah. So here's – I mean so it was really an interesting findings. Um, so essentially what we found was you know, having education debt or home debt – is either really positively associated with with children's um, uh, well-being, or or you know basically a zero effect. Yeah, neutral. Yeah, uh, yeah, or neutral. And whereas having unsecured debt is negatively associated. So when parents take on unsecured debt, um, it's associated with an increase in their children's behavior problems. Um, and we really sort of tried to use rigorous methods to isolate because what you worry about, right, is that people whose parents take or Families that take on credit card debt or unsecured debt and families that don't um, are very different. And so you're not comparing apples to apples. And so what we did was we did some different types of statistical adjustments where we would say, okay, let's control for a ton of background characteristics of the families. So we're really trying to, on things we can observe, compare like families. Then we said, let's also look at children's, let's 
account for a, each particular child's prior behavior score. So mm-hmm. we, um, so the data that we're using essentially. Um, we were able to observe children from 1986 to about 2006. Um, so, so the kids are born at different points in time, um, but you know, on average, we're uh, observing a kid for eight or ten years. Mm, and yeah. so, what we can say is, how were they behaving prior to the death? Um, and then we actually do some 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 um, analyses where we're literally looking with, at within child change. So we're essentially saying, as parents take on debt, how does a, um, you know, it's averaged across all kids, but as a, what's the change in their behavior scores? Um, and essentially what we see in these models, you know, which are much more rigorous, there's still large effects that as parents are taking on um, or accumulating uh, uh, unsecured debt, we see relatively um, large increases in children's behavior problems. Wow. I mean, and that uh, that was rigorous, right? I mean, you're, you did everything you could to make sure you were measuring apples to apples. And mm-hmm. and especially this is terrifying when you think of the, the debt load that we're all taking on, especially yeah. the unsecured debt loan. It really is. It's, it's going to impact down the line. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I do think that that's something that we want to think about. And part of it is, you know, as I said before, you're, you're often taking it on for immediate consumption. But if you think about unsecured debt, the interest rates and fees are quite high. Yeah. Um, so you know, uh, you know, so we do, don't test this in the research, but theoretically, you might think that that type of debt um, is more stress-inducing, partly because it's accumulating faster. Even if it's at a you know a lower overall amount that you borrowed than you borrowed for your house, right? Um, and secondly, you know when you borrow for education or a house, you have a very set schedule of repayment, right? And that's not really true as much for unsecured debt, right? So it keeps changing when you you get another fee, you right? Get more interest added to it. Yeah, and it, it, in a way, it's almost like they they treat you differently, right? I mean, one is perceived more. I mean, one, you're going to have people hounding you every day if you're not making your loan payment. Others, you can actually have a forbearance of a loan. You can, you can, you can use your lack of income to, to, to at least go in and renegotiate. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. Um, and even you know this area leading, you know that that period though leading up to a foreclosure, or leading up right. to a bankruptcy, when you are going to discharge that, is still a very stressful period. Yeah. Uh, would it be better that the child was being raised by parents with no debt, or is having some debt healthy for a child as well? Uh, so I don't think that it's having some debt per se that's healthy. I think it's what that debt has uh, has purchased. So I think that if you're thinking about, you know, it's not the debt in and of itself, but there are mechanisms, right? So the debt was used to get more education. Education um, is associated with higher wages, is associated with, you know, better health, a, a bunch of other things. Um, or that debt was used to buy a house. So buying a house is, you know, on average associated with more uh, residential stability. It's um, associated with um, the ability to uh, borrow at, at a relatively low interest rate to weather financial storms. Um, it's um, uh, associated with, you know, an average living in, in a better neighborhood than renters. Hmm. 
Um, so it's really what the, the money is being used for. I also just want to, you know, make a comment about the, you know, quote, bad debt. Right. I just want to make sure that we're not thinking about it just in terms of irresponsibility. Yeah, right. Irresponsibility. And these right? are people trying to make to feed a family. Right. So sometimes. I mean, a lot of what's going on is if you look at particularly in the lower end of the um, the, the wage distribution. So you know, since the 1970s, wages at the bottom have been flat or declining, um, and so what you actually you know, see more of is people borrowing to for to meet their basic needs, mm-hmm. um, and unfortunately, you know that type of borrowing tends to be um, at relatively high implied interest rates. So both the interest rate and the fees that you pay on a credit card or on um, on a payday loan or, right. or an auto title loan, et cetera. Which is why we're hearing in the big political debates about the fifteen dollar minimum wage in California and New York. I mean, it's right. It's trying to help the people that can't make any family life at the lowest income levels. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, there are often good reasons yeah. that people either have to borrow or choose to borrow. Um, that doesn't ne- mean that it doesn't, you know, that it necessarily plays out well. Well, and it seems like some of us haven't been trained. Some of us haven't learned about debt and yeah. debt load and, and, and what is a good investment and I mean, right now, I think a lot of people would question if even school debt, even though it should eventually, you know, increase your income. Yeah. But a lot of people are completely upside down in their school debt. Yeah, I mean, there is there is certainly um, a big debate over you know tuition prices have risen dramatically, um, and there is a big debate over at what point um, it, it does it become a bad investment. I think my read on the literature is that it's still worth it. Um, You know, and on average, uh, you know, so there are people who carry a huge amount of debt. Many of them have been through grad school or medical school or law school, you know, um, and the the people that tend to actually um, fare the worst as a result of school debt are essentially people who didn't take on all that much debt. They took on six or eight thousand dollars worth of debt, but never finished school. Oh yeah, right. Yeah. So never capitalized on the investment, and then have to pay it back, and are at a relatively low wage. Mm-hmm. And what about just? Um, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if this is part of your literature or your study, but there's got to be people that just have ADHD or yeah. have anxiety or have depression or mental health issues and. And, but they're 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 fairly functional. It's just to keep it all straight and a budget, they can't do it all. Yeah, I mean it's extremely uh, difficult to manage all of it. Particularly, you know, if you do have some kind of uh, of you know mental health issues, um, and or just you know having a lower income, right? So yeah. There is a, a literature looking at decision making. In the face of hard, you know, difficult financial stress, and people, it's harder to make. First of all, you have fewer options, right? right. Second of all, you have fewer good options, and third of all, um, you know, in, in when you're facing a lot of stress, it's harder to make a good decision. Mm. Um, and uh, you know, I will also say, so they've done, you know, you know, large surveys looking at how well. Americans um, understand basic finances, interest rates, and things like that. And it turns out that we're actually not very good <laughs> at <laughs> predicting what a loan's going to end up costing us. Yeah, right. And we want the thing, right? We want right. the big screen TV, or we want, I mean, a lot of times you, we want the thing. Our parents had it, and it's just 20 payments right. of, you know, $200 or whatever. So it's, we, we don't think ahead well, do we? 
no, I, and it's you know, and it's always it's not always easy because, you know, it, it, it can be difficult to figure out like you know what am I actually going to pay on this credit card mm-hmm. if it takes me six months to pay off a thousand dollars? Like yeah. how much is going to get added to it? That's right. Just the interest rate. Right. Well, plus if I get the card at the low at Macy's, they'll take twenty percent off my first purchase. That's saving money. Right. Yeah. And next so thing I know, I've got my fifth card or my twelfth card. Right, and then you get to a point where, you know, uh, so let's say you have a bunch of bills to pay, and you know you can't afford to pay them all. It then becomes important to figure out what amounts of which ones do I mm-hmm. actually pay. Yeah. Right to reduce. The, the accumulation of more debt. Yeah. And that becomes difficult to figure out. And so I think some of these things um, are things that, you know, we should spend probably more time on in junior high and high school, you know, in addition to just, you know, math and things, like actually more time on thinking about financial literacy, thinking about um, um, understanding interest rates and loans and how to... Um, uh, you know, use your money best. Yeah, real world math. Yeah, real world finance. Um, what What do we do as parents, Lonnie? What would you suggest as a parent that we do to make sure that? I, how open should we be? How yeah. much of my debt load do I share? How much of my income do I share? Right. So I, you know, I don't have a good answer for the um, you know how much do you share. I mean, I think that that's probably. Uh, uh, you know, so whether you tell your kids your income or not, a preference thing. I think what you want to avoid is having your kids get stressed out about your financial dis- situation if you mm. can. Yeah. Right? Because I think most likely, and we haven't tested this yet, um, the mechanism that, that, that is linking, my guess is, behavior problems, child behavior problems to uh, parental unsecured debt is likely around stress. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and so what I what I think is you know kids will pick up on the stress anyway, but I think you don't, you certainly don't want them to feel burdened, you know, or overly burdened um, by you know by um, or or directly stressed by being too involved. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think you know there are um, you know there are financial literacy services out there and things like that, like and I think. To the extent that that families can, um, you know, there are nonprofits that do this, that can work with someone to think about how do I reduce this debt or make a plan to pay it off in, you know, the most um, efficient and least stressful way. I think that in and of itself should help to um, uh, reduce some of that stress and improve these links. So if you are a homeowner, Right, you most likely are better off to take a home equity loan and pay off um, a credit card because you're essentially going to have set payments, a longer period of time, um, and a lower interest rate. Yeah, and and yeah, create that create that continuity mm-hmm. that uh, that might, I guess, de-stress the family, and and I guess to make sure we're investing in the right, I guess, right's a weird word, but investing in healthier. Investments that will either pay off or um, you know have have some financial benefit to you, like yeah. getting a, an education. Yeah, and I mean, and just you know, it's it's easy to go. I have this credit card in my pocket. Oh, I'm going to spend hundred bucks on this. Or, I mean, I think that really thinking through can you know can I afford to pay this back? How long is it likely that 
to to um, uh, to take me, and is it necessary and worth yeah. a long term investment? Well, and this so a lot of it's really just slowing down and, and trying to have more foresight if you have that you know opportunity. Yeah, that luxury. If you need food. Yeah, you know, you you, you probably have to borrow even if um, um, you know, or if you need housing, right? Um, even if you are going to have a, a high rate. But this is a this is an interesting um, study as well because when you think of you know uh, behavioral problems in society. There is a connection to our debt, and yeah. and you've made that now. Which which you know, if we want to improve our communities and improve the, the need to not have to jail people, and I mean, it might there might be a correlation somewhere down the road to how we spend our money and 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 create stress in our homes. Yeah, I mean, so you know, I clearly think that public policy has a role to play both in terms of um, you know standards, even aside from debt. You know, standards of living and and material well-being yeah. right, that may may or may not lead to people taking on debt. And then there's another role of public policy, I think, around regulation, right? So, yeah. um, what kinds of rates and fees are we going to um, condone or allow? I love it. And great, you've opened a, a wonderful discussion for us, Doctor Lawrence M. Berger, also known as Lonnie Berger. Uh, We appreciate you there from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Thank you for your great work. Folks, I tell you, it's it's a system, right? We live in a system. And the system is – it's policy. It's family. It's needs. It's expectations. It's everything that's going on contributes to the behavior of our children and the well-being and health of our children. Time to check in on the empty news with the empty news anchor, Jeff Simpson. Enlighten us, Jeff. Give us the news. Well, what's the worst thing you've ever found walking into a bathroom? <laughs> Are you seriously asking me that? <laughs> yes. I, 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 Is there anything you can say on the radio? No. Okay. But it's, let me just say, startling. It was startling. Well, speaking of it, startling... It literally took my breath away. Right. <laughs> speaking of startling, there's a small-town Oklahoma newspaper publisher that uh, found a startling front-page story practically in his newsroom. There was a hissing bobcat Ooh. in the bathroom. A hissing bobcat. It's like a hissing cockroach. Ooh. That is terrifying. That would be scary. So, Sepulpa Herald publisher Darren Sumner says the wild animal jumped at him one recent morning as he was heading into the restroom at his office in Sepulpa, a Tulsa suburb. Sumner shut the door and trapped the adult male cat uh, inside until police and a game warden arrived. Wildlife control workers captured the bobcat in a cage and released it outside town. Mm. Sumner said the animal likely got into this building through an open door. They always end these stories by saying, don't worry, the animal made it safely back into its natural habitat. I'm always wondering, like, I just want to know if it's safe to go into the bathroom anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it not that funny? We do worry a lot more about the animals. Like, nobody ever says, don't worry. The man, after seven trips to the counselor <laughs> and uh, four injections, was able to eventually overcome this. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty startling. We seem to be more sensitive toward 
the animals. Now, why is that? It's because they nuzzle. And I watched I watched video of a caged bobcat. Somebody had trapped whatever was eating all their chickens and turned out to be a bobcat. Yeah. I was terrified. Yeah, no, just because he was just yeah, he was ready to pounce in right. a cage, and I was thinking, oh, I, I started thinking this is so irrational, but I started thinking, okay, what would I do if a bobcat came into this? Came into this cubicle right now. How would I react? Okay, oh. maybe I'd jump up on these cabinets, but that's stupid yeah, because the jump, yeah, yeah, he'll just no, jump just dead. as high. I'm a goner. There's you, nothing you know I can what? do. Let me just give you a little advice. Play dead. Just play dead. <laughs> <laughs> just play dead. Oh. I mean, if it doesn't work, let me know. See, but that's an effective video right there. Yeah, if totally. you can terrify somebody who's sitting in a cubicle that would never see a bobcat come into their workspace. Right. You've done your job. <laughs> Okay, uh, how about this? After stealing a Ford Fiesta from Hayward, California, mm-hmm. three car theft suspects managed to get the car stuck on a rock in Concord before jumping out of the car and fleeing on foot. How do you get stuck on a rock? Oh, it's, it's easy. We've been stuck in Iraq for years. <laughs> you mean a rock? Yes. I guess it's a big rock. So according to the Concord Police Department, the three thieves drove through a neighborhood and found a way to get the car stuck on top of a rock on the side of the road. The thieves found themselves between a rock and a hard place. (laughs) That's according to the Concord Police Department. They wrote it on Facebook. A Concord resident called the police after seeing the thieves jump out of the car and run away. The owner got their car back, but the suspects... Remain at large. Mm. That's another another thing I've never understood. Why are they at large? Well, because the obesity epidemic. Mm. It's 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 getting everybody. Maybe Even that's the how they thieves. got stuck on the rock. Uh huh. Stuck on a rock. Ain't a big <laughs> surprise. I think yeah, that's uh, Neil Diamond. Was that your Neil Diamond? No, that, that's just the song he sings. Can you do that again? No. Wow. See, I'm willing no, to always way. repeat what I've sung. Yeah, but I... You're a one-and-done, no-encore type of guy. You, you get one chance. You get one chance. That's We've got to take a break. That's why. Well, uh, we'll take a break, folks. We'll come back. You might get a chance to hear my uh, Neil Diamond impression. <laughs> Pretty good chance you won't. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. As we are so family-friendly, doing what we can to elevate your life and your family, it's now Terry's chance to uh, give us a little parenting advice. You fancy yourself to be some kind of expert when it comes to maybe child-rearing on some level, yes, parenting, fa- marriage. I fancy myself yeah, that way. You, keep you are about fancy. <laughs> fancy uh, pants. A 28-year-old Wisconsin woman is accused of driving with her young son strapped to the roof of her minivan. Investigators say Amber Schmunk. Had her child, it's S-C-H-M-U-N-K. Amber alert. That's the sound that was made when that woman was hit in the stomach with the baseball last night. (laughs) Schmunk. Schmunk. (laughs) She had her child right on top of her minivan to hold down a plastic pool. She's been charged with a felony for the incident. It happened in September. Uh, That woman needs to think about the safety of her children, said a neighbor. To put a kid on top of the car is beyond ridiculous. That's the opinion of the Neighbor, maybe a nosy neighbor, but still a neighbor that was willing to talk to a TV station. I mean, there's ridiculous, and then there's beyond ridiculous, and that's beyond it. Officers were dispatched to the area. 
For reports of a child riding on top of a minivan, of course, holding on a plastic pool, the criminal complaint says Schmunk eventually pulled over, took her nine-year-old son off the roof, folded the pool, put it inside the van, and then she pulled into her sister's driveway. Schmunk told responding officers that she believed it was okay as her father let her do things just like that when she was his age. Is that her defense? Yeah, we that can't use that. Defense. We can't use that anymore. She told the police there wasn't enough room inside the minivan for the pool. Except there was because she folded it and got it in there. Good parenting, bad parenting. Uh, that's bad parenting, negligent okay. parenting. Uh, by the way, super fun if your kid is like way into like scary, dangerous things. Or van surfing. Or van surfing. Yeah, and like on uh, what? Teen Wolf. Teen Wolf. There you go. <laughs> and by the way, the obvious reason why we have Amber Alerts. Because of Mrs. Cause and, Schmunk. And Schmalunk. Schmunk. Shunk. Yeah, that's not that's not good parenting. Okay. Well, I, she said that she did it when she was a kid. You always talk about how well, you used to slide around the back of the car. Yeah. It was fine. Now we have seatbelts and car seats. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> boring, boring, boring. But now her child is going to think that's okay to do. Oh. Except it's beyond ridiculous. <laughs> as the neighbor said. <laughs> Don't we have funny language? Yeah. See, a, a good parenting tip. Always fold the pool up. Mm. Don't let it be a sale because that's a sale, really. True. And then blows away your child. And the van. And the van. Possibly. Life lessons from the Matt Townsend Show. That's why we're here, folks, to help you uh, make sure you're not arrested as you're just trying to get your family home with the new pool. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Happy November 1st. You made it to the new month. It's time to give thanks. Remember, the big feast is this month, so be happy. Sure, we had a big chocolate feast last night, Halloween, but... uh, Thanksgiving is coming. Joined, of course, by Jeff Simpson and Terry South. Hello. Hello, everybody. Uh, still uh, reeling. I'm not, actually. But um, others are reeling from last night's game. The Dodgers take game six. The crowds are going wild. So much excitement. Tonight is set up, I think, for a major game. And I, I'm going to predict it will go. It will be a major batting you know, camp you demonstration. Think so? Yeah. You don't think it'll be a more subdued, calm game like last night? No. I wouldn't say it was calm, but, you know, the bats were calm. The bats were calm, but I think that's, don't you think that was really, I mean, I think a lot of that calmness was Verlander. Could be. He put a nice. But he did lose the game. He did lose the game, but boy, he had people. Popping up for six straight innings. He struck out Cody Bellinger three times. Cody Bellinger went on to strike out four times in the game. Yeah. Yeah. And it's always the same pitch. They, it's interesting. Why it's, can't why, Cody had a great game in um game in five Houston. So that's why I think it's gonna it's gonna turn into a hitting fest. Of there course, there are know. some pitchers that have his number. And the number of many of the other Dodgers. Are you talking phone number? Yeah, they probably have that too. People get those cell phone numbers out there, you just cannot change them fast enough it's funny it's I, not a lot of no people have my privacy. phone number Shall i, I don't share even it? think i've given you guys my number have i yeah i have it i'll just put it on your twitter feed how's that i use it whenever they're no. offering oh, okay. free pizzas like give us your phone number we'll give you a free pizza <laughs> is that why they keep calling me from uh all of the pizza 
parlors around the state? Yes. You go try that to get your That and every food. rock chip repair. <laughs> Crazy days, folks. we got a lot to talk about today. In fact, we're going to be talking about how to stay positive in any situation. Wow. It's not, it's not easy because life is pretty negative. And who, hel- who better to help us with that than Dr. Paul Jenkins, who wrote the book, Pathological Positivity. Hmm. It's a big it's, – it's, it's hard to say, but it's, it's an important one. Pathological. And, is, doesn't that kind of have a negative connotation to yeah, it? Yeah, it might. Okay. So we'll fix it. That's why it's a good title of a book. It makes you look at it and go, wait a second. It makes you think about it. Hmm. So there's a lot of excitement about Game 7 tonight. We'll talk to BYU Sports Nation about that in a bit as well. But a lot of negative news, sad news, actually, again, coming out of New York, another terrorist attack. Uh, Terry, let's get to the headlines, and you can talk about that. The man suspected of ramming a truck along a bike trap path in New York City on Tuesday afternoon reportedly left a note saying he acted on behalf of ISIS. According to NBC New York, the suspect 29-year-old Uzbek, Uzbek National, I can't say that. I'm not even going to try to say his name. Okay. That is one I don't even want to know name. his name. Right, but I mean, if you tried to put that on a jersey, whoo, it's crazy. <laughs> he left the note inside the truck, which he rented from a Home Depot store in New Jersey earlier in the day. At least eight people are known to be dead, dozens others injured in what is being described as New York's deadliest terror attack since 9-11. Hmm. The man reportedly shouted, God is great, in Arabic. He was shot in the abdomen by a police officer after getting out of the truck and was transported to Bellevue Hospital, where he is being treated. He had a paintball gun and a pellet gun, just causing mayhem. So uh, they're responding and investigating. They don't think he's actually with ISIS, more just inspired by it. A lone wolf situation. This is the problem. It's It's an ideology. It's not just an organization. So and he buys into the ideology. Exasperated U.S. senators harshly criticized representatives of Facebook, Twitter, and Google at a hearing Tuesday for not doing more to prevent Russian agents interfering with American political process as early as 2015. At one point, Senator Al Franken shook his head after he couldn't get all the companies to commit to not accepting political ads bought with North Korean currency. People are buying ads on your platforms with rubles. They are political ads, Frank, uh, Franken fumed. That's hard to say. Frankenfume. Frankenfume. Not to be confused with Frankenstein. He goes, you put billions of data points together all the time. Google has all the knowledge that man has ever developed. You can put together rubles with a political ad and go like, hmm, those data points spell out something pretty bad. The companies all pledged to do more and politely said that they understood the seriousness with which lawmakers are taking the question of Russian meddling. Yeah. Or not. Well, Yeah. Depending, I mean, because like the president says, it's, like, it's have all they fake, never right? dealt with? I mean, have they never dealt with a global organization? I don't know. They, it's like they feel like you're in, you're in America. You should only take U.S. dollars for everything, right? And it's like that's not how the world company works. But interesting. I don't okay. Know. Uh, this is some interesting numbers. Cables, October's cable rating numbers are out. Right. Yeah. So over the summer, MSNBC had a huge lift. Oh, they were killing Rachel Maddow was it. number Rachel one. Rachel Maddow was the bomb. That's changed a little bit. Uh-oh. TV Newser website has a spin from the cable news networks here. The rising tide continues to lift all cable news boats. Mediate, that's a website you were looking at the other day. Yeah. They do a lot of TV kind of Is it news. Mediate or is it Media I8? Either way, <laughs> Media I8, Media I8. Media I, 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 I'm not sure. Media so I, a guy I, from there said in his column <laughs> that focuses on CNN's success. For the, for a year now, CNN looks to be on the pay, on pace to secure its highest ever number when it comes to total day viewership and both total viewers 
and the uh, key demographic. Hmm. It also looks like it will have one of its best years in primetime viewership, as the network should end with the second largest viewership in primetime since 2008. Really? Uh, a guy from CNN writes, There is an interesting nugget buried in CNN's ratings press release for October suggesting that the growth in MSNBC's audience has disproportionately come, not surprisingly, from older viewers. CNN noted that a total day median age was its lowest since 2008, while MSNBC is at its oldest on record. Hmm. The takeaway image is one of MSNBC viewers in the age of Trump behaving a bit more like Fox News viewers, namely parking in front of the TV and keeping the all-day outrage machine running. <laughs> is that what? Is that the new Fox slogan? All we day are your all-day outrage station. No. So just the idea that MSNBC used to trend really young. Yeah. Now it seems like they're going fairly old and longer periods of time. Right. Which is odd. So in the age of Trump, it's like Fox News in the age of Obama. Right, exactly. And it, it, all of this matters, um, doesn't matter, because President Trump has basically called all of them fake yeah, news. It's all fake. So. So who, I can't believe anyone's listening anyway. Right. And finally, we had a, uh, a flare-up a couple months ago here on the show. What? Matt had one of those, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, you know, I got that cream, and it went <laughs> yeah, away. it went away. Um, the, the, the king, president, chief potentate of Sweden, whatever political office they give him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Uh, he, he dislikes pineapple yes. on his pizza. <gasps> yes. And he oh, said yeah. that if he could, mm. he would outlaw pineapple on pizza. Which is... Ridiculous. Yeah, I think it's 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 beyond ridiculous. It is a crime against humanity. Pineapple is great. On I pizza. would like that we talked about things that we would like to like. I would like to like pineapple on my pizza. I just don't. I would like to like you now. So as this Mashable article says, from, uh, since the beginning of this exasperating year, there have been many, many, many debates on social media. From politics to social justice, none have been more demeaning than the infamous controversy on whether or not pineapple belongs on pizza. Now a new contender has surfaced, sending Twitter users into an all-out frenzy. Hmm. If you thought pineapple pizza was bad, we regrettably introduce you to strawberry pizza. <laughs> And as this says, it sounds as gross as you think. But uh, strawberry <laughs> on a savory pizza? Like a cheese pizza. Cheese, tomato sauce, pizza, and then you hmm. put strawberry slices right on top. Hmm. Well, I mean, I'd try it. I mean, what's the difference between taking a bite of pizza and then, you know, not finishing that bite of pizza completely and just plopping in a strawberry? Yeah, right. A lot of people mix up their foods like that. It's all going the same place. As this bias reporter says, uh, while some people were smart enough to object to the idea that strawberry should be eaten on top of a pizza slice, others, heaven knows why, were surprisingly down with the idea. This one, uh, and so there's all these Twitter, you know, you look on Twitter, all these people going nuts because they're bored at work. This guy says uh, pineapple and non-pineapple pizza eaters must put our differences aside and join forces to defeat this evil. (laughs) <laughs> oh. Strawberry does not belong on pizza. And I, I agree. I think there's a well, road too far. Have you tried far. it? I think it's a road have too you far. tried it? It's a road too far. I, I think the reality is pizza has made it for centuries, mm. really millennia, even with something like fish on it, right? Well, yeah. Anchovies. Yeah, they're fine. So if, no. But they're, they're salty. They're good. Yeah, it's fine. What? As long as it's, if you get like the works and there's just all kinds of stuff going on, you barely notice that there's like this fish in there. There's a little fish head. Yeah, you're fine. Like, 
So would you rather have fish head staring up at you? I've had that. That's good. Strawberry sounds Ugh. gross. You wouldn't rather have like a little strawberry eye staring no, at there's you? There's no fish head. They, I'd they rather, chop it up. I'd rather try the strawberry. See, that's the point. And nowadays, you can put anything on anything because this no. is America. We must have rules. There are limits. Are there? There are. There is such a thing as too much power. Like genetic testing? Yeah. There's limits to how far you can go with that. I think there should be the same for pizza topics. Hold, hold, hold it. <laughs> Do not disparage genetic testing because same. genetically I have found out how much – what percentage of you, hmm. of your gene pool, what percentage of your gene pool would be Italian or Greek? Probably zero. Probably zero is right. Yeah. How about you, Jeffrey? Greek? Yeah. Ooh, I... Or Italian. I would say less than zero if that's okay, possible. Okay. So in this room, mm. not to brag, but I have seven percent. Seven percent of my genetic makeup is Greek or um Italian. So if there's anybody in this room yeah. that has a genetic right to say something, it's moi. So when you say Hold my on, people moi is is uh, French. Yes. When you say my people have been through a lot, you feel like you could say that with authority? The Greek people <laughs> slash Italian well, people? <laughs> let's be really clear. I don't know if I'm Greek or Italian. Okay. I just know that genetically it comes from that region. I mean, mm. maybe I'm from an Anglo traveler. Ooh. Who came, uh, An Anglo who came, traveler? Who came from England and was just vacationing in that area. Just happened to be there. And then mixed the gene pool. I don't know, but what I do know is it's in my genes. I'm currently checking my ethnicity estimate, yeah. as they call it. Your EE. My EE. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. My, my, my self comes from nowhere near the Mediterranean. So, so, mm. so, so let's go back to pizza or a pizza pie. As but I like I'm, to call I'm, it. I'm lousy with Irish, though. So. Yeah. 60%. If we had an Irish question, wow. we'd defer to you because yeah. you genetically... I'm basically green. You are. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm basically... Yeah. I'm basically a, a really neat mix of Scandinavian, British, mm. Western European, and 7% Italian Greek. Hmm. Hippa! Oh, sorry. Opa! How many days in a row are we going to talk about this? You brought it up. No, I said genetic testing. Yeah, exactly. More, more you in the sense like, it. like mad scientists you know, combining things. You know, Frankenstein's monster. Yeah, we're not supposed to do that. That's what I was talking about. Frankenfumed. Yeah. Um, let's and, just, and then you you let's somehow back to pizza turn this into your ancestry DNA readout that you got the other day that you're so proud of. Yeah. Seven percent. I'm not just Anglo white. I'm not. I'm not. I also have. A really cool, really cool 7%. Should I be more proud of my 4% Northwestern Russian ancestry? Ooh. Oh. Yeah, you've been working for Trump? (laughs) I have made all disclosures necessary, yes. (laughs) Anyway, um, that's, I don't know, I think it's great news. Great news. I don't care what you say. And I think you should put strawberries. At least try it. No. You can try it. I mean, there's dessert pizza, and that's not really pizza. But this is the, you got like the tomato sauce and oh. the cheese, and then you throw tomato, or, uh, you know, strawberries in there. Come Just on. try it. No. You, Mama said you try everything once. Try everything really? once, yeah. Try everything once, and then you can have your dessert. And eat it, too. 
Ooh. I think we're mixing metaphors and stories, but uh, we all get the point. Chocolate syrup on spaghetti. Wow. There's a mix. That's good. Boy. You're a monster. The 7% Italian in me just <laughs> turned over in my grave. That just sort of happened one day, and I was like, yeah, let's give it a shot. It wasn't bad. How does that happen? Uh, it's a long story. Yeah, but it actually, it didn't happen. It was intended. Well. I mean, it's not like the bottle of syrup fell out of the... No, but, you know, magic happens. Was this something you did on your mission trip? No, no, no. This okay. happened just at, at home. I was just, you know, looking around, looking in the fridge. What can I top the spaghetti with? And I went, chocolate syrup. Or did you do it after watching the film Elf? Uh, oh, that was maple syrup. Sorry. Yeah. That, that was, was maple syrup. Yeah. <laughs> did you hear the Cleveland Browns kind of botched it? Uh, when? Like every Sunday for the last five, six years? Yeah. So what they're trying to do then is they're trying to then improve their team by trading their quarterback. Yes. And they made a deal with the Cincinnati Bengals to acquire mm-hmm. quarterback A.J. McCarron. Yeah. But they failed mm-hmm. to complete the trade. How so? Because they didn't notify the league of their approval before Tuesday's 4 p.m. deadline. Yep. So are they without a quarterback then? Rules are rules. Yeah. Well, they've kind of been without one for a while. Hey. Well, I just watch him play. But he's still a human being. Yeah, he is. Just not very good at football. <laughs> so wow. Maybe insurance. Maybe he could sell some insurance or something. So apparently the Browns were celebrating the trade, but they forgot to call it in. And so according to the NFL.com, the teams agreed to the trade at 355. Mm. While the Bengals notified the league before the deadline, the Browns did not. Instead, the Browns sent in paperwork just after the deadline and told the NFL that there should be a grace period. The league did not grant the Browns a grace period. It's such mm. a Browns thing to do. There is a systemic problem where you change the management, you change the coaching staff, same problems exist. Stuff like this, where they just, one small detail, oh, sorry. Sounds like somebody's losing their job. It's a technical issue. It's a technical. It's crazy because it's on the field and off the field. You would think. Like on the field, you get offsides and holding and just kind of dumb penalties, and then they do stuff like this. And then on the field, you can't even get the quarterback traded. Yeah. (sighs) We We learned, by the way, the Browns, where the name came from. Right. Right? And UPS. What? Who'd you say? There's a guy named Paul Brown, right? Oh, I mm-hmm. thought it was UPS. Yeah. No. Okay. Paul Brown. Yeah. It wasn't the, the company. It wasn't like a dog, even though that's kind of their mascot. But at some point, you got to be able to get that deal done. Yeah. Especially when you should know the rules. That's kind of your job if you're the guy in charge of you know player personnel. You trade I mean, people. You, all, you gotta, all they have to do is make a call. Make a phone call. You probably hey, have hey, it hey, on we speed did this. dial. We did this. Yeah. Yeah. But who hasn't made a mistake like that? I mean, just 31 other teams that made a trade. Yeah. Well, they didn't trade yesterday, but they've made trades in the past. And you'd think they'd be really good at this because they've traded so many times. They've been trying to, yeah. Hmm. Sounds about right. Such a brown thing to do. Yeah, when your team's name is Brown. UPS Brown. Brown. You make it sound like that's negative. Well, it just kind of sounds like brown. Really? That's about how I feel about it. Well, let's make it more positive. Up next, we're going to be talking about how to stay positive in any situation. Even if you just didn't make the call and you didn't get the quarterback you wanted and that you needed, how do you turn that into a positive? Dr. Paul Jenkins will be joining us to talk about it. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We're going to get you positive one way or another.
You know, we face uh, situations every day where it, life is tough. Maybe you get a parking ticket or you realize, you know, you got home and you didn't stop by the store to get all the things you needed. Or maybe you're in charge of trades for the Browns organization and you forgot to make the call to the NFL so the trade didn't go through. And you lost your quarterback. Uh, sure, anything can happen, but negativity doesn't uh, have to be permanent. So here to help us walk through how to stay positive in any situation, how to turn our anxieties into hope, is Dr. Paul Jenkins. He's a friend of the show. He's been on many times before. In fact, you came on right after the Boston Marathon yeah, bombing. I remember that day. And you saved, you saved our day. Saved our biscuits. You saved our bacon because <laughs> it was a really hard day and you helped us find positivity. Well, there are things that, that happen all the time. Yeah. And it's easy, especially if those things are challenging or painful or difficult or disturbing. It's easy to jump to a conclusion that things are not good. Yeah, this isn't good. Right. Times are bad. I mean, look at this. And project it forward, right? So we take our current experience and we project it into this world as bad. Mm -hmm. Everything's horrible. I've got this amazing job. I get to illuminate the obvious. Yeah. Which is cool because I get paid to tell people things I already know. Right. But there's there's obvious things that are unnoticed. Mm-hmm. So we just kind of go merrily along our way, and we're on autopilot, and we don't even notice that certain things are happening. So that obvious but unnoticed concept. Can yeah. You, can you feel your shirt? Oh, yeah. I, I feel it right now. Yeah, now it's you can. It's tugging on me. Now it's you funny can. Because it's obvious. Right. But we don't ever pay attention to but it. But you don't tune into it. And the same thing happens in our mind. There are processes going on in our mind all the time. But we don't always notice them. Yeah. So we get into autopilot, and we don't even see that we're we're processing things in a certain way. So true. It's so true. And I guess are we are we supposed to notice our thinking? It no. seems like you know evolutionarily that would have been really dangerous. Oh my gosh, you would go crazy. Yeah. Not that you're not. No, crazy, I'm already crazy. The, you, totally. You would go nuts if you had to process and notice everything. Yeah. So your mind just naturally puts things on autopilot. It doesn't want to. It, it doesn't want to have to think about everything, so it goes on autopilot. But there's some things you don't want on autopilot. It seems like you really should make it. You should kind of surface certain thinking, shouldn't well, you? Well, it's it's not wrong that it's on autopilot. That's just how it's we're just designed. Yeah. Yes, that's our neurophysiology. That's how we're yeah. how we're supposed to operate. It's helpful occasionally. To go into a, a mode that I call metacognition. Yeah. And it's, so metacognition, that's just one of those fancy words that psychologists make up. Right. Because it makes us feel smart. Yeah, right. But uh, if you break it down, cognition means thinking. Mm-hmm. Metacognition is a higher level. It's thinking about thinking. Yeah. And so now that you notice you can do this, what if we took something like, you know, current news events? You hear, you hear about this this idiot who jumped yeah. on a bike path in oh. New York yesterday. Kills eight people, injures many others. Right. And that's a good example of, oh my gosh, this world has fallen apart. Right. 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 It, it, it is what it is. Yeah. Now, you've heard that phrase before, and it can be kind of annoying depending on who's saying it. Right. But all it means is the way things are. The way things are without changing anything. It's who you are. It's where you are. It's what you have. It's who you're with. It's just it is what it is. It is what it is. It's just a statement of how it is. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Now, notice this. There's a process that goes on in our mind. It's called evaluation. Yeah. It's judging. 
And Matt, we can't turn it off. No, so so we take a situation like that. It is what it is. It is. It happened. Mm-hmm. But then we immediately evaluate it, and we have like a bad feeling about it, and we should probably. Right. Be- why do we have a bad feeling about it? Because we're judging it. That's right. Now, I'm not saying this is right or wrong. Right. In fact, I, I do not tell my clients what to think. Yeah. I just want them to notice that they are. That's how it's happening. Exactly. So we take what it is. Now, notice this. And, and don't take my word for it. Run it through your own filters of yeah. truth and see what happens. What it is is always between something better and something worse. So this scenario no could what. have been better or it could have been worse. Absolutely. I mean, it could have been 50 people killed. Yes. Yeah. Or it could have just been two. Exactly. Or it could have been no None. idiot Zero. got on a bike path that day, That's which right. is what usually happens. Uh-huh. And it's actually what we would really want to happen. And it's what we expect and it's what our experience tells us should happen. Yeah. Well, occasionally something like this happens. Now, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong. Yeah. I'm just saying that our mind takes it and judges it. So we're asking, is this good or bad? Is this lucky or unlucky? Fortunate or unfortunate? Right. I don't know. I'll check. Yeah. And then how do we check? Well, the word evaluation implies comparison yeah. with some standard. And so the standard is what? The, our the ideal? stuff doesn't happen. Okay, yeah. That is the standard. That's the expected norm. Hmm. And when that doesn't happen and we compare something like this to nothing happening at all, we feel bad about yeah. what happened. And that's natural. Exactly. It's the way we're supposed to feel. Yeah. And you're never wrong about how you feel. How you feel is 100% consistent with the way your mind is doing this process. Mm-hmm. It's ex- it's, so, yeah, you're perfectly aligned to feel it. Yes. Now, what if we compared it to something worse? Oh. I heard this morning as, as the news was being reported, this is the worst. Now, notice yeah. that's a comparative yeah. word. This is a, the worst terrorist attack since 9-11. Exactly. In, in, New, in York New York City. Yeah. In New York City. Yeah. See, we have to we, – we clarify. Okay, here's our standard. Here's what we're comparing it to. And since 9-11, have there been terrorist attacks yeah. in New York City? Yeah. Yes, there have. And worse, I guess, would mean most deaths. Probably. Probably the most deaths, the most violent. I don't yeah. know. But there's some standard. And so we, we declare that judgment on it. Mm-hmm. You know what, Matt? Sometimes people feel badly about how they feel. Yeah. I mean the, – Yeah. It, it, it goes into several different layers. Right. Oh, I'm feeling bad about this, and I shouldn't. Now I feel badly about <laughs> how I'm feeling. Yeah. You're never wrong about how you feel. I just want people to notice that this is why they're feeling the way that they are. So if somebody feels uh, negative and pessimistic regularly, mm-hmm. is it is their brain then has just somehow wired in a way to keep driving these negative feelings? The way I like to think about this goes back to an experience I had with my son a few years ago. He took me hiking mm-hmm. on a little trail called the, the Stairway to Heaven. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. This isn't in, in Hawaii. Yeah, it's on it's, the island of Oahu. Yeah. It's actually trespassing. It's, and we're it's, not talking about Oh, that. yeah, but it's, is that the seven pools? It's No, it's it's simply these these old metal stairs. I think they were constructed yeah. by the military. And you drive up you the walk shearage up. of a volcano to the to the very top. It was a lookout. Yeah, because you're about to die. You're on the way to heaven. And it is steep. And yeah. it is scary. Yeah. And between my fear of heights and my fear of breaking the law, this was... I, it took some soul <laughs> searching to get edge. me up there. Right. Yeah. And, 
and I noticed I, I was taking a picture of my son, and I was looking down at him, and it looks like in the picture, it looks like he's lying down on the stairs. Really? He's not. He's standing up. That's how steep these are. Oh, wow. And the perspective, it's hard to tell in yeah. the picture. What direction do you think we're going if we lose hold? Oh, you're going down. Oh, yeah. See, default is down. Yeah. And and I found that that's true in psychology. That's true in relationships. Yeah. It's true in your finances. If you let go of it, if you quit doing the things that help to move you to a higher level, yeah. you're going to go down. It's going down. So default is down. And as we realize that and we experience something painful or difficult or challenging, the easiest thing for us to conclude is, oh, this is bad. Mm. When really it's just what it is. It could be better. It could be worse. So do we hang on to the – then we hang on to the negative thought as if it's positive because it keeps getting us a good result of not going down. Well, there's – actually, it gets complicated by another process yeah. too yeah. because evaluation, judgment is only part of it. Then the other thing that we do is called creation. Yeah, then we mess it up. <laughs> now, we make stuff up. Well, we make stuff up. How are you doing next week? Yeah. Depends you, on this week, right? You don't know. Right. So. You don't know. You got something to do with it. Yeah. But we use that same imagination power. We use that same power to go create something. And have you noticed that you've got the power to make a mess? Oh, yeah. You can, you can make it anything <laughs> you need it to be, it. too. Yeah. So what if we were to anticipate or expect that what's coming is worse than what we already have? Uh, Do you see the anxiety yeah. that jumps in? We don't know what's coming. Yeah. So notice we can always imagine something better. We can always imagine something worse. Well, when we're in evaluation mode, if we imagine something better and compare what we've got to that, we feel worse. Yeah. But then when we switch to creation mode, we need to switch gears on our imagination too. What do you want to create? That's something better yeah. or something worse? Well, you've got to imagine it first. Yeah. When we imagine something worse, that serves us well in evaluation because we can see we're in a good place compared to that. Right. But in creation mode, it causes anxiety. Oh, interesting. Because we're imagining or predicting that something worse is going to happen. Yeah. We don't know. So, so we, we pick really, a position. But I guess – and we're doing, this is, we're doing this all unknowingly. Well, Unconsciously. Yes. It, it's autopilot. Yeah. It's just how we programmed our mind. And you know what? You get really good at whatever you've practiced. Yeah, right. So do we I, – I guess the goal then is to become more intentional in if we're in an evaluative mode and or a creative mode. Well, first notice that you're doing it. Yeah. Notice it? Just notice. I had a guy on my couch the other day. Uh, yeah, I have a couch. Was he just – oh, in your office. I like <laughs> – right. some guy just showed up. <laughs> no, man. He's on office. your couch. Yeah. So we're having this conversation. He says – he he gets this kind of defeated, oh, I guess I just really need to change how I think. Hmm. And I said, or not. You don't have to. Or not. And he's like, but but I want to. Oh, well, that's different. Yeah. That's you interesting. Know, yeah. Take the pressure off of it. Yeah. Just see that you're doing it. Yeah. See that you're doing it. Because until you see it as a choice, it's not. So um, if somebody has a tragedy happen to them – Mm -hmm. The process of thinking is naturally going to happen, and it would be natural for you 
to fall into a maybe despair or a funk. That's all natural. Yes. And you can stay in it or we you can change it. Can you change it? Can you change the death of somebody really dear to you? You're not going to bring them back. So you don't. You, you just have to. Think you don't different. get to change what it is, Mm-mm. except to the extent that you have something to do with what's going to happen next. Hmm. Okay, because you're going to create something. Yeah. And what are we going to create? A bigger mess? Possibly, huh? Or are we going to take the materials that this mess delivers to us and create something beautiful from it? That's good. When you think about your own life, Matt, as you as you recall, difficult experiences mm-hmm. that you've had, painful experiences that you've had, you can also see that during those times, there was a lot of evidence that people love you. Yeah. There's, a, there's growth. There's learning. In fact, some of the most powerful learning comes through pain. Yeah. So is pain a bad thing? Well, no, it's just a thing. It's yeah. part of what we get to experience. And death... Nobody gets out of this alive. Right. But when you're evaluating it, you're you're evaluating it as a bad thing. Right. Or you could. Yeah. You could evaluate yeah. it as a bad thing. And that's going to affect your feelings. Yeah. So I'm not saying people have to be positive. No. I'm just saying there's a choice here. Is it um is and is it always best or healthiest to be positive? It depends on what you mean by that yeah. because being positive doesn't necessarily mean that you're happy and joyful. Yeah. It might mean that you choose a position. It, this gets back to the word attitude. I, I, I was talking to one of my author friends who was writing a thing about attitude in his book and he went to interview a pilot mm. because attitude is an aviation term. Right. And it means the position of the plane relative to the ground or the horizon. Yeah. And can you see that a nose-down attitude It's, it's, it's imp- going to hedge you into yeah. the hard stuff? And it's important to know, right? So you've got to know what that position is. It's, and it's not always how you feel. Hmm. Okay? If someone that you love passes away, especially in a surprise tragic way. Yeah. And notice we feel a little different if it's a prolonged illness and we're kind of like, oh. Yeah. You know, there's this relief at the end of it. Well, you got to experience pain for 10 months before that right? or whatever it is. Right. You know, there's a amount. But when, when someone passes, how are we supposed to feel? Well, if we love them, we're supposed to feel sadness. That doesn't mean you're being negative. Right. Sadness right. is a result of the love that you had in that relationship. Man, we judge our thoughts a lot. Like we judge ourselves quickly. Like what a loser. Oh, my you're, gosh. And you can't you gotta turn it off. you got to pull yourself out of this. Yeah, and you can't turn it off, Matt. That's my point. Yeah. You you are constantly judging. And you, you really – your point too is you don't need to fix it. You just need to start it's being not aware. Broken. Just be aware of it. It's not broken. It's yeah. doing what it's designed to do. Mm-hmm. And until you see it as a choice, it's not. Yeah. That is key. And And then once you see it and then you can see it as a choice, then you can choose – I mean it, and it might even serve you for a bit to stay in it. Stay in that thinking pattern. Just stay in it. And notice it. And notice it. And And then you might say, okay, I think I'm done with that. And then make a choice out of it. And I guess you'd choose your way out of it by by then getting in your imagination and choosing another way to move it. What if if positivity were not, I feel happy and giddy and, and like laughing. Yeah. But positivity is choosing on purpose 
a position hmm. that allows you to do something productive with any experience you have. Yeah, that's cool. And you might choose in in the case of something very painful, you might choose to take the position yeah. that this is painfully perfect hmm. for me. Yeah. And it could well be. No, absolutely. And then and then I guess you is is there a way that you can then change to positivity? I think that is positivity. How do you do it? Like what's the what's the turn? Is it just interpreting it differently or evaluating it so differently? Starting with evaluation. The positive aspect of evaluation is when you can find gratitude. Okay, that's the key. Yeah. That's the brain hack, really. Yeah, right. If you can get to gratitude for what it is, not what it could have been or might have been yeah. or should have been. So what is, find the gratitude on what is. Like right. eight people were killed. The gratitude would be it could have been worse. It could have, it could have been you. When they, when they captured this guy, he had like a paintball gun and a pellet gun on him. Yeah. He didn't have an arsenal of what that guy in Las Vegas had. Yeah. You know, automatic and that, none of firearms. That, but none of that changes that eight people died. That is what no, is. right. It just changes kind of how you feel about what is. And let's not minimize the pain no. of the loss. Right. Positivity doesn't mean that we're ignoring the pain. Right, and putting your head in the sand. If nothing else, I think we acknowledge the pain and we see that the pain is because of Mm-hmm. The inherent goodness and love that exists in human relationships. Yeah. We wouldn't feel pain if we didn't care about those people. Yeah. Can we be grateful that we live in in a state of love that allows us to care that something like this happened? Yeah, I mean that's just that. Be grateful yeah. that you actually care. And that the majority of people you know what, we talked about this after the Boston Marathon bombing. Right. Um where I was watching that video and I remember, oh my gosh, Matt wants me to help Put a positive spin on this? Yeah, how do you help us get positivity out of that? I see this blast of smoke, and then a few seconds later, another one down Boylston Street a bit, and people dropping. And I'm like, what am I going to do? And then I remember going to another video. It was Dan Conley, Mm. the district attorney of Suffolk County. And he said, incidents like this, as terrible as they are, do not expose our weakness. They illuminate our strength. That's cool. And then I watched the video again, and I saw it differently. Yeah, I still saw the blast. I still saw the people dropping, and I saw hundreds of people—first responders, bystanders, everybody—running yeah. toward in. the smoke. Right? Isn't that cool? Look at all the heroes. Yeah. You look for the helpers. You look for the heroes. There's a few villains out there. Yeah. Sure. But why do villains exist? It's to illuminate the brilliance of the hero. Yeah. That's, That's their cool. only purpose in literature and film. It's so true. So good. Dr. Paul, uh, thanks. We're going to have you back soon. And let's not just have you back every time there's a terrorist attack. Every time we have some kind of an attack, I get to come in. But it is good because you then elevate our minds. What if you didn't do that? There's a choice here. I know. And you led us to it. What if we do that? By the way, the book is uh, The the Portable Positivity. It's a little book, but it's all about taking this pattern, this model you're showing us, and how to 
carry it around with you, but really how to start changing your life yeah, with it. Yeah, how to do it. How do we find the book? It's on my website, drpauljenkins.com. drpauljenkins.com. You're going to want to go check him out. Also follow him on Twitter, at Dr. Paul Jenkins. Uh, we'll uh, continue the journey, helping us elevate our game by talking to BYU Sports Nation. That's straight ahead. Game seven, folks. It's tonight. Astros-Dodgers. Of course, this is the game. The Astros will sneak back and take the championship, win the World Series. But uh, who better to get... Hey, everybody, settle down. Sit down. Let's go now down to BYU Sports Nation and uh, find out what the true blue sports experts think. Jerem Jordan, Jason Shepard. Hello, gentlemen. What's up? Good morning. What's happening? Game seven. (laughs) Oh, it's going to be game seven. And I'm predicting it's going to be big hitting. Lots of hits tonight. Like last night? 3-1. It was a low score. Not not like last night. Last night, it almost seems like in this series, every other game or so, Big little, big little, big little. So can we expect another, uh, like, six-hour baseball yes. game? Is that yes. what you're saying? Don't you think? Like a 10-inning again, 11-inning maybe. Look, here's all I know. Okay, I, I don't have a dog in the fight. I, I would like the Dodgers to win, but, I mean, I'm not I'm not a fan of either team. Yeah. Here's the fact of the matter. Okay. Everyone wins with a Game 7, okay? Yes. Everybody wins. There is nothing better than a Game 7 an elimination game, winner take all, sports cliche. Throw it in there. There's nothing better than that. I agree. Now there is, there is someone who loses, and it's one of the two teams tonight because uh. they're going to be super bummed. Okay. They're not going to be like, at least we push. You're going to get technical on me. Then we're not going to be able to have any fun. <laughs> you know I'm technical. Well, you there, know by the way, there are other cable providers that may not like it. Uh, NBA probably loses. Uh, I'm going to bet. NBA is not that. It doesn't really inject itself until it's not their time. Political talk shows are going to lose. But other than that, it's a really good idea. And so you don't have a dog in the fight. Jerome, do you? No, I just want a good game. I'm not. I I have a rooting interest for both teams. Yeah, I do. When I was younger, I went to some Dodgers games growing up in L.A. I, I went to one of the playoff games. So I'm like, hey, I was there for that. Then the Astros are uh, an AL West rival of my Mariners. Mm. So I'm kind of like, oh, that'd be nice to have the champ out of our division. I would, like, I would like to see at the end of the night, Mary Hart uh, just finally get that championship <laughs> that she's been looking for since really? you know, for a couple of decades she now. It's, she was at the game last night cheering. Did you how see was, that? How does, of all the celebrities in L.A., I yeah. mean, like it is the Hollywood, it is the celebrity capital of the world. How is it that Mary Hart gets the <laughs> best seat? Because it's Mary Hart. What do you mean? Why Why was she? It's Mary Hart for crying out loud. What I mean, what I mean, that that was like that was like back in the day when Entertainment Tonight was at its peak. Yeah. You remember Mary Hart and John Tesh? Oh, yeah. I thought for sure they were married. That was a I did, too. That the was a chemistry. The chemistry. When I was little, I used to think that uh, that uh, Dolly Parton and Kenny Rogers were married. Yeah. Because they sang the duet Islands in the Stream. I know. I thought. A man and a woman that were together mm-hmm. that much, I thought, I just assumed they were married. And it seemed like they were talking in code. Mm. Islands in the stream. You know what I mean? That is what we are, Matt. Yeah. Yeah. I, was I gonna thought keep... all we are is dust in the wind. Ooh, good pull. Ooh, wow. Out of nowhere, he pulls in dust in the wind. Out of Kansas, but yeah. Yeah. 
Hey, um, did you guys go trick-or-treating? How'd it go with the kids? Is everyone all right? It was cold last night. I, well, well, let's talk about what we did last night before trick-or-treating. So we had the BYU Sports yes. Halloween Spooktacular. Was it spooky? Uh, at LaBelle Edwards Stadium. It was really fun. It was a blast. So uh, Spencer and I were Wayne and Garth from Wayne's World. Oh, I wanted to see that. And then Jason Shepard with... Uh, Alice Cooper. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. He still got a little. Speaking bit. in Algonquin. Oh, I thought you were going to go as Mary Hart. No, no. That was the backup. Did you bow down to him? That was plan B. But the night was slayed by one Greg Rebell, who was Ron Burgundy. The entire second hour of the show, he Stayed was in character. character. Did he awesome. really? Until the last one minute. How awesome is that? It was, <laughs> he okay. interviewed Mo Longy. Hansel Taniello, Kalani Satake, all these guys, as Ron Burgundy. I have got to, okay, I'm going to It was to watch awesome. That. He's going to be on the show today. We're going to talk about it. How fun. Yeah. And uh, was he was he wearing 70s attire even? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He had a burgundy jacket, <laughs> mustache, full head of hair. Yeah. That's which good. was fun to see Greg with it hair. It was you know? fun to see that. Well, what was it? Yeah, that seems almost shocking. It was. I, I laughed really hard when I first saw him in the makeup room. But, like, lost it for, like, 10 <laughs> seconds. That's why it's good to have a really great makeup crew. Yes, we have the best. Have, Mar- Marin is legit. Marin is She works great. with Studio C and all the shoots. She does my abs. Yes. She, yes. Spray paints them on? Yeah. Well, yeah. Yes. How else do you think I get them? <laughs> you don't think they grow on trees, do you? No, I wish well, they did. Not in this country. Okay. So we'll go plant the, an, uh, an ab tree. <laughs> I want a money tree first. What's uh, what's what's on your show? Are you guys still going to do your show today? Today we're just going to t- break down Game Seven. No, uh, we're going to talk about uh, BYU's matchup with Fresno State. Is that scary? Uh, Saturday? Yeah. No. Okay, good. Scary. We're going to talk about the BYU hoops exhibition tonight against West Westminster mm. uh, with Greg Rubel, voice of the Cougars for football and basketball. We have Butch Powell on the show as well, uh, linebacker for the Brighams. We'll play a little. What's the chance? And uh, in case you missed the spooktacular last night, we'll show you some of the images from that. <laughs> slash discuss it if you're a radio listener, which if you're listening to this, you are. Yeah. Yeah. If you, yeah. You know, I bring a few. Oh, yeah. I mean, I just bring a few. They're all family, but they're good. No, if you, you have a lot of family. Yeah, I have a huge family. Mormons, you know. Yeah. <laughs> are you Mormon? Really? Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. You're one of those. Mormons. Would never have known okay. that. Uh huh. It's weird. Um, you're okay. a Latter day Mormon? I'm a Latter day Mormon saint. And um, I, I went on a mission trip. Mm. Oh, good. well, I mean, it was a vacation, so. Good. Two weeks or two years? <laughs> two years. Oh, okay. Two years abroad. Any mission trip is awesome. Two-year vacation where all you did was good work charity. out. Mm-hmm. And get the abs that <laughs> I, I now bring. That and plant ab trees. Like, every every time BYU stinks <laughs> at something, like after a season, I want to be like, see, mission's not an advantage. Yeah, it's a huge advantage because they're one older. And seven in football. Two and seven. See, not an advantage. Everybody wants an older player. Just ask Tom Brady. They're mature players. They are. They're mature. Mature. Don't you say mature if you're actually... If you like, are... If, yeah, it is mature. Because I say mature, so I know I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> That's because when you're young, when you're older, you want it to sound more dignified. Mature. Mature. Mm-hmm. Well, guys, I know it's going to be a great show. It's the JJ combination. You can't beat it. And uh, so you better join it. It's By the way, it's only five minutes away. Five minutes away. You get to... Um, have the joy of uh, Jerem and Jason, and you get to see Gre- Greg Rubel with some hair. So all of that is going to be really good. And, of course, tonight, Game 7 of the World Series. You might want to tune in. It's, there's a very, very high likelihood 
that the Astros will knock off the Dodgers tonight in Game 7. One thing for sure, yeah. after tonight, the World Series will be over. Yeah, I'm kind of excited for that. Someone will win. That. Yeah. I, I want it over, be, but I really want tonight to go about 10 innings, <laughs> and I want there to be a lot of scoring. Hmm. And back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Then I really don't care who wins. Would you be disappointed if it was a one to nothing game? Yes. Wow. I don't want it to be a pitching battle. That's not fun for anyone. I want it to be a battle of the bats. Yes! And I'm sticking to it. Hey, it's time to talk uh, heroes today, right? A fire started in a garage in Sherman, Texas, before 9 p.m. Saturday. With a family asleep only a few feet away, 13-year-old Cameron Hunter said she was staying at her grandmother's house just down the street when she saw the flames. I almost started crying because I was like, they can't die, Hunter said. So I had to hurry. Everything in the backyard was on flames, even the trees. Burnt leaves were flying everywhere. Hunter said she yelled for her cousins to call 911 and ran up to the family's house, pounding on the front door until they woke up. They were just in shock like I was, Hunter said. I'm surprised she didn't try to get in the house herself, her father Cody said. He told us while he was uh, proud of Cameron. He wasn't surprised she reacted that way. She sees any type of danger or anything that she's pretty, and she's pretty quick on her feet. Anyway, she called the fire department, saved the family, and uh, it all started apparently with a space heater that uh, was keeping the dog warm. Somehow it started a fire. Anyway, all is well, and they were all able to, uh, to escape without problems. So thank heavens for her. She's the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. And that is the program, my friends. BYU Sports Nation. It's up next.